I'm rolling. Hey everybody, here we are. It is week five, a little bit later in the week than normal. Sorry about moving it from Wednesday, y'all, but hopefully most of you can still make it. And it was for a good reason, so maybe we'll discuss that later, but it was, just take, take our word for it. So very good reason, very good reason. And I hope y'all enjoyed Eastwatch, a great setup episode for the last two episodes of the season. Sets a lot of different things up, but it had a lot to do on its own. My favorite uh, thing to call right now is Reunion Bowl, but it also had a lot of other strong themes. Of course, as always, I'm Aziz. That doesn't change. <laughs> Ashea is here on my left, combo running production and co-hosting, wearing many hats at once without actually wearing a hat. Well, I guess headphones kind of count as a hat. Earmuffs. Earmuffs, which I think our characters in the North really could use right about now. Seriously, those guys didn't even put up their hoods. Like, what is up with that? I mean, I know we got to rec- be able to tell who they are, but that is damn cold. <laughs> I bet Show Jorah wishes he was Book Jorah right about now, you know, with all that bare hair all over him. He's probably jealous of his uh, book counterpart. But welcome back, Radio Westeros. Hey there, guys. Uh, Lady Gwyn, good to have you here. Yeah, very good to be back. Excited to talk about this one. Yes, big, lots of book uh, implications for this episode. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you agree, uh, Yoke Boy? Oh, yeah, this was a, a book reader's dream, I think. You know, I, I rewatched the episode and... I didn't like it as much the second time because it was the revelations that I really loved. Mm. I'm sure some of you uh, watching us can relate to that. It was the the boom moments, you know, that relate to the books that really, you know, got me excited. I see people talking about Shea's shirt, which is (laughs) good. I got boxes full of Pepe. (laughs) It's funny, someone actually made a, a Pepe Sylvia joke on Twitter right before this, and this shirt arrived today in the mail, so what... We, we're starting off on the right foot, is what I'm saying here. So another theme of this episode was fatherhood. It's something we talked about a bit on on a Monday that we're going to talk about more today. I pulled a quote that I think really reflects that theme. Tyrion talking to the Red Viper. It all goes back and back, Tyrion thought, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and one day our own children will take up our strings and dance in our steads. A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 10. And that, of course, conversation involves the marriage of Rhaegar to Elia, whereas Tywin wanted it to be Rhaegar to Cersei, of course. That didn't happen, as we know. So that's pretty cool. Jamie Lannister also is a father now. That's to add to most of this talk is about prior generations, but Jamie slides in there. You guys noticed some uh, other fatherhood examples, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Sam is a father figure, technically. That's to, right. to little Sam. <laughs> Not his kid, but he's uh, he's playing that role and like he should. Yeah, and Davos even jumped in reminding us that about his son, who some of some of us might have forgotten, Mathos died in the Battle of Blackwater, and he, you know, Davos reminded us that he's a dad. Yeah, and uh, shout out to our co-writer Joe Buckley, who wrote an essay on fatherhood on Tower of the Hand this week. So check that out if you feel so inclined. A lot of these exact characters are mentioned; it fits really nicely. A couple of announcements before we get into the meat of it: we had a, a book to show 
video only episode on Saturday with, um, actually that was Sunday, sorry, Sunday with Lucifer Means Lightbringer of the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast, where we discussed the caverns of Dragonglass, the signs and sigils, and it's video only because it's a highly visual episode. We got over 30 images, some of which were on screen more than once. So if you're used to hearing us on podcast, this is a very rare time where the episode is only on YouTube. So we hope you guys get to check that out. It's a lot of fun to make. Also, the Kialo tournament. This is a pretty big deal. All four of us are judges for this tournament. And first place is $10,000. And there's prizes for the top 20. You can find the links to it in the description of this episode after it's posted. I don't think it's in there yet, but we'll we'll have it in there soon. It's on our website as well. And you can also just search kialo.com or search for it on medium.com. It's K-I-A-L-O. And you make a structured debate yourself with a visual... Well, just go to Kialo. It's hard to explain, but the $10,000 first prize is what you all really need to focus on. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the part to suck you in and to check it out. Also, we're doing a giveaway. If you email Westeros History Giveaway, not Westeros History, Westeros History Giveaway at gmail.com, we will enter you in this drawing. We've got several of these boxes to give away. Shea is putting the details on screen right now. They're really cool. They've got, you know, a variety of stuff in them. There's a map. There's a book. It's a really nice version of the book. Some of the one of the some of the there's some signed stuff in the in the uh, limited edition box and very good, very fun. We got a copy for um, for our doing this promotion and we're really happy with it. There's some coins in there too. There's a learning Dothraki in some of them. It's really good stuff. Check out the link there to get the exact specifics of what's in the box. Yeah, go to uh, your email and send us an email at westroshistorygiveaway at gmail.com with the subject giveaway. And you'll be entered to win. We're going to give away, you know, one this way, one this week, and two next week, and two the week after that. We've got four of the special addic- edition $75 boxes, and one of the limited edition $250 boxes. That's right. Which is really cool. And um, Aziz even decided to open it up to people worldwide. These boxes aren't being sold over or aren't being sold <laughs> overseas, and so we'll we'll flip the cost and send them to you even if you're in New Zealand or something. So we've gotten maybe 300 entries so far. So there's not that much competition. That's right. And of course, this is a leak-free stream. None of us have watched the leaked episode. Also, thanks to our patrons, Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, first in battle. And our Dragon Rider patrons, Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, Rider of Masla Cartho, White Dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons is in the chat helping us out. He's one of our chat mods as well as a top supporter. Talenis the Talon is King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. I see you've got a question in the queue for us tonight. I've got that in the document. Thanks for that. And Jinx of House Lier, also one of our chat mods, helping out a lot, swinging that van hammer if needed. Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Irigenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Both of these hatchlings are drawn by Ed Shear, and the current art of Maslacartho is by Azani, and that is awesome. So, also thanks to all of Radio Westeros' patrons. They're obviously, their support helps Radio Westeros be here and do things with us, so that's great. And also, I just want to remind people, if you are on Patreon, make sure you check your patron messages. It's, you know, whether you're a Radio Westeros patron or are, some people aren't aware that you get messages from us on Patreon. And that's a shame if, if we're sending you stuff and you're not aware of it. So be aware that that exists. Last time I made this announcement, several people said, 
Oh, I didn't know that. So I'm going to make it again just in case uh, not everyone heard it. We're going to start off with a couple of super chats that were sent to us ahead of time. Yeah, we've got one from Dino Hall. Reed Barrick in episode one of season seven, he said he doesn't know the Lord's plan for him. I think he will use his last life to bring back someone, maybe John, who falls on the raid like he does with Kat in the books. Thoughts on that? Mm, yeah, that is, I very much agree with that. When Barrick was brought back in the preseason last year, that was a, similar to the theory that I had, because it does seem like that's what happened in the books, and it seems like maybe Stoneheart is going to pass her life force on at some point. Maybe not, but that's kind of how I feel about it. It always seemed kind of likely to, as a setup. What do you guys think? Any other takes on that? Do you guys feel that that's kind of his purpose in the show here to kind of take that place, kind of pick up that role again? Yeah, I, I would go with just a slightly altered version that, you know, he just does something heroic, you know, not necessarily like literally passing on his life flame, but, you know, something something to, uh, you know, be remembered by, you know, in the in the kind of depths of time. Some last heroic actor. That's what I think for mm. sure. So you could say he belongs on our worry of the week, which is we have a lot more to say this week. Our worries of the yeah. week are uh, <laughs> a bit uh, more hyped up and a little bit more uh, fruitful to, for discussion this time around. I'd say whenever people go beyond the wall, you gotta you gotta worry, right? <laughs> uh, we got another super chat here ahead of time. Yeah, we do from Travis Eisenhart. What is your theory on why Melisandre is going to Volantis? Also. Will she live long enough to actually come face-to-face with the White Walkers? What do you guys think? I think she's going to bring Rolorists with her, because I think that's going to happen in the books, and I think they want to line that up. I think that a bunch of followers will, will maybe come and help fight the undead or something like that. Maybe it'll go differently. That's my take. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Any other any other suggestions? Um, I had this idea that, that Mel, Mel could marry John and Daenerys down the line if that happens in a kind of end game scenario when the world's caving in and you know Melisandre happens to be there we know that she can marry people huh. yeah she, you know, she did that's right she married um Karstark and uh, or not Karstark oh yeah Alice Karstark yeah. and, and uh Sigourn that's right I forgot about that yeah yeah leaning on book cousins. that's a good Sorry. call no that's a good call yeah I didn't think of that <laughs> and and how about the second part of the question will she live long enough to actually come face to face with the White Walkers that's a tough one she says she's going to die on this strange continent, and I take that 100% seriously, even though she's wrong about so many of her other predictions. <laughs> she's a little bit more accurate in the show than the books, I think, but she's also given less predictions mm -hmm. in the show than the books, probably. <laughs> We've also got two more Super Chats, one from Haley Linville, 85, who says, Give a shout-out to my friend Melinda. She loves the show, oh, wow, and always tunes into the book to show. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. Hi, Melinda. What a great friend to do that. Yes, that Very is cool, cool of you, Haley. <laughs> Hi, and, Melinda. And we got one other Super Chat, and these first three Super Chats were from before we even started the live stream, but uh, we had another one. The other one is from uh, Operative Platypus. Thanks, Michelle, from down there in Australia. We didn't see a question attached, so if you're watching live, feel free to send it in, or if you catch this later, send us the question and we will fit it in some other point thanks very much for that thanks for all these thanks for all these super chats it's great we we share it out and um you know it really kind of makes this a good <laughs> evening for us and it makes it worth our while thank you let us yeah. get going huh yeah on team john and team Daenerys. or actually did you guys have we i guess we didn't quite finish that other question do you guys think that melisandre will come face to face with the white walkers oh, that's an interesting question never thought about that I, I really hope so. I really think that that's in her mind, that's what she's living mm -hmm. for. You know, I think she would just love to have a, you know, I don't think she'd mind dying if it was taking out 
you know, a bunch of whites. Yeah, I don't know. I want her to interact with the White Walkers. I feel like it would be the natural progression of her storyline. But then I thought Randall Tarley would see the wildlings or the White Walkers or, you know, re- you know, realize that he was wrong about everything and then he just died. So I'm pessimistic that she'll actually get that to play out. Yeah, on the other hand, what would kill her other than the White Walkers if she's not coming back until this great war has started, you know? Yeah. Um, that's a... Uh, Davos? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's go to Team Daenerys and Team Jon. They their their arcs were very connected this episode. And my first comment on that is how long before this is the same team instead of Team Danny and Team Jon? Maybe it's just Team John John Aries or yeah, mm-hmm. Team Denon. I don't know how you say it's that. Jon Aries. That's what people call <laughs> it. Lady Gwen, take it away for us here. Well, I think that you know when when we'll talk about this more later on when. Uh, John leaves Dragonstone. I do think that her consent to him and that interaction they have there implies that it it might be already the same team. Yeah, um, and then mm. yeah. So I mean, it, there's definitely this sort of, sort of significant the fact that she let him leave. I mean, they're obviously working together now. So um, then at the very end of the episode, I, I there was a quote that I thought really implies not just how much team. John and Team Daenerys have merged together, but really how all the arcs, any team you can think of at the, you know, the end game, they're all going to be working together. And that was what Beric said in the final scene. Here we all are at the edge of the world at the same moment, heading in the same direction for the same reason. And John replies, he's right. We're all on the same side. The side of the breathing. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of... <laughs> exactly, because we're living. It reminds me of Stannis, when Stannis talks about the others, and he says, the ancient enemy, the only enemy that matters. Now, in in the show, we've got a large group of people all banding together who are thinking like Stannis was then. It's really exciting. Stannis was the original. He's the <laughs> hipster uh, warrior uh, against the White Walkers. <laughs> He kind of ruined it when he burnt his own daughter. Yeah, that's not cool. That's not hipster at all. <laughs> Very unhipster. Cool he lost his hipster card yeah. for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shay is pulling up a really vicious, devastating image, at least if you're a fan of House Tarly, which probably not a lot of you are. But. Tell you, I was so disappointed that Drogon, you know, wasted his food there. He should have eaten them. Like, maybe that's more brutal and disrespectful, but... I don't know. I think it's more disrespectful to waste their lives. <laughs> and they're perfectly good armor. I mean, they yeah. was, that fire was so hot that there was nothing there. It was, yeah. it was, it was entire, the whole thing was ash in like three seconds. <laughs> they, they didn't suffer much. They screamed and then there was just done. It's so hot. Anyway, it's a great shot though. It's just really cool. Poor guys, but. You know, they could have been Denis, I guess. Like Tyrion said, hey, she gave them a choice. Uh, <laughs> or did she? <laughs> what did you guys think of uh, Danny's speech, uh, Lady Gwen? Well, I thought, you know, of that scene, I thought I, I had hoped that we would get to see more um, Randall and Sam mm. back together again, especially, you know, sort of the fallout of Sam stealing Heart's Bane. <laughs> Um, it's a funny way for him to get away with that in the longer. It's like, oh, well, they're not coming after me now. Uh, I, guess, I guess I'm okay with this. So, but I think really more so even than his father, it was a shame we never saw him get to make peace with his brother. Because after, you know, Dick Gunn saw the horrors of war, I think that was a reunion where you really could have seen some connection come between them. And it's too bad we never got to see it. Yeah. 
What did you think, Shay? You had some uh, thoughts on these uh, opportunities here? I guess it was just to show us more of Sam's backstory and get more Valyrian steel into the show, but it really felt like a missed opportunity both to have Sam and Dickon bond and talk about things and to have Randall, you know, come face to face with everything he was wrong about. Well, didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been nice. I guess it's a kind of a, uh, a casualty of the pacing. Um, but again, we'll get something like that in the books, hopefully. Maybe uh, maybe it'll be similar because uh, the Tarleys will be going to Fagon and maybe they won't be able to double flip. Maybe it's the same kind of situation where they flip and Tarly just can't bear flipping again. And maybe he has the same thoughts about her being a foreign invader. I can see a lot of that carrying over. Maybe not the specific burning of them to death after a battle, but maybe, maybe. What do you think, uh, Yoke Boy? What do you think about this scene in general? Yeah, I was thinking about the obvious comparison, you know, Danny's now kind of burning people alive. It was outside of the active period of battle. There she is burning people alive. The fandom has talked about the Mad Queen for, for a long, for years in the books now. And, you know, it got it got me thinking, does this mean Danny's mad? What what what's trying to the writers trying to say here? And and I I, I took away that Danny isn't mad. I really don't think she's mad. I think that question's posed to us. But really, you know, it's war that's mad. And in battle, you, you do things that in any other context is madness. You know, if you take Danny's context away, then she is Ares. But, it, you know, in war, it's not. So I, saw, I see this scene as a kind of statement of war rather than Danny's madness, which I really don't question. And, you know, it reminded me from the books, the quote from, uh, from Thoros of Mir, war makes monsters of us all. Mm. Oh yeah, because because Tarly says there's no tough choices or there's no easy choices in war. Yeah, that was that was kind of mm -hmm. that's a good catch. We've got a super chat right here from Mines of Guinness. Will mm. John trust Danny when he finds out that she burned Sam's family alive? What will Sam do? Mm. Well, I, I don't know how much Sam will truly care. Yeah, I think he'll. Yeah, I think it was sad, but I don't think he'll like hold it against her that much. Yeah, he, I don't know if he'll be vindictive. I mean, he kind of understands people fighting his father, maybe. <laughs> his yeah. father's kind of a hard ass. His brother, maybe. We don't. It's hard to say. We don't know how close his brother was. Because we know, we know Randall heavily favored Dickon over Sam, but we don't really know how Dickon and Sam <laughs> got along. Which mm. maybe they didn't, but I, I'm not really clear on that. So maybe Sam would shed a tear for his for his brother. Yeah, I mean, Dickon certainly didn't. I mean, I'm sure he would be upset, but Dickon certainly didn't, you know, back him up in front of his father or anything like that. He kind of picked at him as well. Yeah, but that was a different actor. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that when it was the other guy, the guy from Harry Potter. <laughs> when it switched to the guy from yeah, Black Sails, he yeah. became, you know, more of, a, more of a pirate, which isn't really better, I guess. <laughs> okay, so moving on. Where were we? Let's talk about, yeah, so Lady Gwen, you had um, a thought on maybe how the Tarly family situation might play out now. Well, you just, you know, of course, you think there goes Randall Tarly and his heir. So what's going to happen now? And there are a couple possibilities. And I'll, the, the first one is that um, it could go to young Sam because, you know, he's uh, been claimed as Sam's son. And of course, there are no paternity tests in Westeros. <laughs> and in any medieval society, what matters is the father accepting. You know, it's the father saying, "This is my son." That that's the their version of a paternity test. So, I think um, that would be heavily ironic, given Randall's feeling about wildlings and 
um, you know, the fact that he's a child. (laughs) (laughs) Randall's extreme negative feelings about that would be pretty ironic. But there's another option, too. Yeah, I don't think he'll be very happy about the other option either, because he's got a female (laughs) heir now. It's Latala. I don't know if she's married or not, but if she's not married, she could, you know, keep their name or something. But I don't think he'll be very happy. If there is a long term, whatever, if Tala does get married, her husband could maybe try to claim Hornhill through that child, whatever child they have, any children they have. But that's obviously not, I don't think there's, that's not going to happen in the show. I no. would think. But that could be a book thing <laughs> if the Tarleys are extinguished and, and Sam, you know, isn't somehow let out of his vows. Because I don't think Sam will get Hornhill, but I could definitely see baby Sam getting it. That would be really funny. Especially given that his brothers are White Walkers. <laughs> that's right talk about foreign savages <laughs> ancient brothers, foreign brother savages uncles. <laughs> so what did you guys think about the 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 how Danny was able to kind of guide Drogon sort of almost telepathically not like I don't think it touches on warg level communication but it seems like that's something and I wonder if that has any book implications because the, the bond between dragon and rider is still kind of unexplored we obviously have some perspective on it from danny but it's it's not all there is it it's still kind of Mm. unexplained yeah i think it'll be actually it's the borg is probably the closest analogy you know you could that it will be a very similar kind of um when we learn more about it it'll be a similar relationship definitely telepathy or you know a mental union of some sort and um, I don't think we'll see that in the show. It'll probably just be left up to our very vivid imaginations. <laughs> yeah. Um, Snow and Winterfell makes a good point that in the in the books we have it's Mance's son, right? Not uh, Craster's son. That's flipped around. Is that right? Because Mance's mm-hmm. son, they have to take Mance's mm-hmm. son, and, and Craster's yeah. son stays up yeah, there. So that's, that's correct. Another yeah. confusing bit of book to show crossover to keep in mind. <laughs> Oh, we've got two super chats now um, from Craig Lewis. Trailer for episode six shows men rushing through the gate heading north. Do you think they're heading north on a rescue mission or perhaps they see the survivors returning and are going out to help? Yeah, that's that's an interesting call. I, I noticed the we same thing. We looked in depth at the next time on because we have our Saturday stream now, but sounds pretty accurate. Yeah, definitely we'll have more to say about that on Saturday, but I did take a close look at that. Um, I'll take a closer look later. But yeah, it looked like maybe Davos was leading that group. And they were really in a hurry. Like, they were ducking below uh-huh. the gate before it even fully opened. So I, I, I tend to side with that, your final comment, which is that they're seeing their friends return and they're rushing out to help them. That's my, I think that's a straightforward interpretation. And right now, that's where I'm at. <laughs> any other thoughts? Yeah, do you guys have any different takes on that? You guys looked that? at that. You guys aren't in our Saturday stream, so. Yeah, you want to weigh in? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just really scared for Davos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he didn't go with, but hopefully... Yeah. Uh, he, he did make a point of saying how rubbish he would be in that environment. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Tyrion and Varys, shall we? Um, I'd say this changed my thinking a little bit on Varys' attitude, like, because he seemed very down-to-earth in the scene, more than we've seen him, maybe since his conversations with Tyrion or maybe some other conversations... Uh, that I'm not thinking of. But he's rarely like this, and it made me feel a lot more comfortable with where he's at. I I don't think about him... I think this took my suspicions down a notch or two, though it certainly left them in the future as a possibility for Varys turning on Daenerys. What what did you guys think? Well, 
I guess, you know, I, I've been thinking about the, the book arcs. You know, in the books, it's pretty much taken for granted that Varys and Illyrio have... They're going to use Danny to advance um, Aegon's cause. So if we assume that the Aegon storyline has been abandoned or merged with Cersei's storyline, then I do worry about Varys. Um, but on the other hand, I don't. I feel strongly that he wouldn't go over to Cersei, and nor would he be welcomed by her. So, uh, you know, to what end would would they work that in? I mean, yeah, the lack of another candidate is really problematic. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I was thinking about this. Perhaps there's a way around this. You know, we, do we need another candidate? What if Varys doesn't back another horse, but possibly if he. If he despised Danny's methods and her use of fire so much that, you know, he could try and kill her, you know, in a spur of the moment thing or, or you know, try and sabotage a mission or kill a dragon or do something, you know, anti-Danny. He doesn't need to back another horse if he was rattled and he was like, you know, I can't, I can't back this. I'm going to sabotage it. So just throwing that out there, you know, he could act against her with, without acting for anybody else. Yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of can see it that way. We've seen some people suggest that maybe John, he'll back John, which you know, with the annulment stuff, that I guess that theory gets a small, a slight bump, um, mm. especially if Varus learns about that somehow. I don't know how he would, but obviously it's not impossible. So mm. I guess it's still on the table, Varus's betrayal uh, potential, and I would say that if it does happen, it's not looking very likely this season. You know, because if it's the fiery stuff, the Melisandre stuff especially would boost that. And that doesn't seem very likely to happen this year. That seems like a season eight thing. We'll see. All right. Let's talk about John and Drogon. Yeah, she we've has... got the same shot we had before just because it is so, so awesome. Yeah. And I just want to talk about, like, gorgeous CGI here. I tend to pick on the show a lot. In particular, their CGI, I tend to think it... I don't know, it can leave much to be desired sometimes. Like, I mean, I think we've all noticed, like, Danny riding her dragon in previous seasons, and it just looks ridiculous sometimes. But this was fantastic, and so I want to make sure I give, I take the opportunity to applaud them for their CGI, because I think this was their best CGI ever yet in the whole show. Uh, it cool. was really good. Uh, the scales looked amazing, the eyes looked amazing. Uh, yeah, it was great. So, uh, Lady Gwen, you had a, a comment here. You think that uh, Drogon picked, detected something, an odor, perhaps? Just a very brief comment. My thought as I watched that scene was, we must smell like Targaryen. <laughs> hey, Brown Ben Jon Snow. <laughs> One of his own. Yep. And we've got a, a very familiar book trope. An important conversation interrupted by something that's just way too distracting for that conversation to continue. What do you think about that, Yoke Boy? It's been kind of on the periphery for a few episodes now, hasn't it? And they wouldn't, the writers wouldn't keep bringing it up if it wasn't going to be a contentious issue going forward. It's got the potential to be really contentious in the context of a zombie, you know, undead in, invasion for sure. How Danny will react, I, I don't know. I, I start to wonder if the other possibilities, like, could 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 be, have been dead. Could it affect John? You know, what's it going to be like when he meets the Night's King? Has he gained anything? Was there a boon that we don't know about? Was the the other way? You know, is he has he got more flaws now? We don't know. But to be honest, this John be, being back from the dead plot could could do with being a bit kind of deeper. 
you know, getting out of the Night's Watch vows just seemed like a bit of a cop out, and I'd like it to serve a deeper purpose. It's a pretty good, pretty good uh, thing to notice. Would you guys have any thoughts on that? Mm. Guess not. Yeah. All right, let's keep going then. Um, you guys, it uh, seems like Danny's body language with regards to John was very telling. Not just the the idea that he was leaving, but how she watched him with Drogon and yeah uh, it's pretty clear that mm-hmm. and then she just flat out says yeah, so that reminded me of my, the way my weird <laughs> brain works I often find a song for things so you know a, a little sound bite I've grown used to brought me back to a old Lerner and Low musical moment so, from My Fair Lady of all things uh, so it's <laughs> a weird experience in the middle of Game of Thrones <laughs> but um I think it was in that su- in that same scene where John quoted Mance to Danny, which is you know kind of an inversion of Danny quoting Mance to John la- uh, last week. Yeah, he she whatever she said thing. to him, oh, right? That catch. was last yeah. week, right? And in this scene, she uh, he says to her, "I wish you good fortune in the wars to come," mm-hmm. which I think is maybe the second time they've gone back to that quote. Yeah. I think right, it's more yeah. than twice, yeah, because so, I know I know Arthur Dane says it as well, right. and yeah. uh, but I think it's at least one other time. I, I forget though. Going back to Mance, it's kind of funny that um, his name keeps coming back up, but I guess that's just maybe part of this whole theme of of the people who came before. You know, the, the prior generation. He's not exactly a father in this sense, although in the books he is to father to the child that's been taken south. So that sort of loosely ties in. But I, I I always felt that Mance was a father figure to John because remember he you know he's a bastard and yeah. I always felt that the the way that he interacted with John was part of his kind of you know upbringing really I don't know if you agree with that that's a good point no that he does I mean it was a their interactions were relatively brief but Mance liked John and they did have some things in common. And, well, they have a lot of things in common. So, yeah, well, yeah. John is on a leadership arc, so he's looking up at, you know, the, the ultimate wildling leader. You know, it's a great, great experience for him. That's very true. That's very true. So, of course, the next big thing that happens at Dragonstone, apart from all these constant reunions and conversations, is Bran's message shows up. That's obviously a really big deal. And it's not only does John get this awful message about what's happening with regards to the Night's King, but it's like, oh, hey, how about that? Bran and Arya are alive. Now, he had, he's, knew Bran went beyond the wall. That's a difference between book and show. But, of course, like Sam said to the Archmaesters, it's pretty amazing that Bran survived beyond the wall when all these wildlings died and everyone else died and Bran is crippled. So mm-hmm. it's reasonable for Jon to have given up a little hope there, even though he was really stubborn about Benjen. So... Uh, I think that fits, even though I can see why some people would think that maybe they didn't quite write that dialogue just right. But I'm okay with it, you know. <laughs> what did you guys think about that? Any takes there? I like John's uh, standing up to Danny. <laughs> yeah, we got a super chat, though. Oh, from, from Jake the Fifth. Yeah, Jake Vanderwick. Uh, no question, just wanted to say thank you to the four of you. Our fandom is spoiled by the amount of content you produce and the knowledge inside. Thank you. <laughs> That's a different kind of spoiled, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks I'm very spoiled. much, Jake. We appreciate thank that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're down for that kind of spoiling. Thanks, thanks, uh, Jake. <laughs> much right. appreciated. Yes. 
Okay, so yeah, so it's it's interesting. You know, Danny consents to let John go after he stands up to her, and then we get some in a meantime mission before they go north. Of course, they have to do this mission to King's Landing. Now we'll talk about the Jamie Tyrion aspect of this later because that fits really well in with all the King's Landing and Jamie stuff. But so let's talk about Davos and, and Gendry. How about uh, how about the shot my father, burned my son comment there, a little conversation. Yeah, I was wondering if Tyrion even knew that before then. I don't know how he would have. I'm guessing he probably didn't. You're right. Like, how would he have known? He's like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's not like Mathos uh, Seaworth mm. was some famous knight. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> how would he know? Uh, yeah, just kind of a, so. you know, another faceless or nameless yeah. soldier. And then um, this really does fit well into Tyrion's guilt about war and fire burning. I mean, it brings that burning back to him and i'm sure it's been on his mind since the field of fire there so it was a good scene i thought it was a good connection yeah and of course there was a lot of snappy dialogue both with gendry and davos then with davos and the smugglers what did you like uh what did you think about this yoke boy I liked the scene with uh davos and gendry where he you know he recruits him in like two minutes flat <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I just love how quickly the you know the plot moved along. Gendry's like, right, I'm getting out of here. It, it was a classic kind of uh, call to adventure for Gendry. He, he he really wanted adventure, didn't he? He was kind of bored in this kind of mundane environment. And he's like, I don't care what the mission is. I'm coming with you. I thought it was uh, amusing all around his, with his Warhammer and everything. And um, yeah, we had the still rowing line, which... <laughs> All of us, everybody out there must have laughed when we heard the words, I thought you were still, you might be still rowing from Davos. So good. They fan-serviced the shit out of us. <laughs> yes, the kind of fan-service that we give two thumbs up for. <laughs> I usually appreciate fan-service, but that's even, I'm even happy with that. Actually, uh, let me explain real quick. Just I, We've gotten a few no, people that wanted me to explain Super Chat a little better. If you're on an Apple device, you will not see this. That's part of the confusion. But if you're on a non-Apple device, if you look at where the comments box is, you can see a dollar sign right next to the, the comment box, and that's what you click on to do a Super Chat. You enter a dollar amount, and then you can enter your question, submit them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we can get back to our regularly scheduled programming. And right here, I have a pic- I have two pictures for you guys. Yeah. Gendry clearly takes after his father, and they both have huge hammers. <laughs> Innuendo intended. I, I hope that's not a euphemism. I can't see what picture you're putting on. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's um, Mark Addy, the actor who plays Robert Baratheon, has got a hammer, got war- Robert's Warhammer. Uh, he's yeah. wearing like a Nike tracksuit. Yeah, he's but. out of costume holding it. But uh, they both have pretty similarly sized hammers, except, you know, of course, Robert Baratheon, Mark Addy is a, a fair bit larger. So yeah. it doesn't it doesn't dwarf him quite so much. But but his hammer has the like crushing spikes on the end. It's yeah, sort of like yeah. One point, you know, yeah, but they both have the spike on the other side. Yeah, spike on the other side, spike on the top. They both have some fancy engravings on it. One of, of those course. spikes would have been what killed Rhaegar. <laughs> Right through yep, the heart. Right through the heart. And shattered those, <laughs> scattered those rubies. Okay, so if we're, we're back to Davos and his handling of the smugglers, which is great. I love it. He's just, just, I love that interaction. Well, I think he, he doesn't really get enough credit for his, his skill at this sort of interaction. It's Tyrion is always referred to, and very rightly so, as, as the, you know, kind of the supreme talker, the, the guy that can talk his way out of anything. But a lot of Tyrion's talents are kind of 
aimed at the upper crust. Davos has a much larger range. He can convince anyone. He's lords, small folk, gold cloaks. He even had, you know, Stannis convinced. So um, he's he's just so good at um, this kind of direct talk. And um, it's really a, it was a great scene. Yeah, I really liked it. What did you think, uh, Yuck Boy? I, I thought it. I thought it was hilarious. All the you know fermented crab and the inevitable <laughs> hammering of those, those two gold clothes. Is that a is that a British thing? As fermented soon crab. As they walked on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't British know if anyone delicacy. out there noticed. Uh, this was pointed out to me. I didn't even notice, and uh, I'm British, so I should have because the actor of one of the gold cloaks is called Kevin Eldon. He's he's kind of a famous mainstream uh, comedian he's been in a lot of comedy films and, and tv shows over over here and you might recognize him because he was also cast a couple of seasons ago in Arya's play in bravos the play within a play and he was the kind of rather you know funny looking ned you're Stark. the dopey ned so dopey his ned. face look familiar what's that mean <laughs> it's funny i didn't really quite put it all together but as soon as you said his name the other day i i remembered talking about it last <laughs> last season yeah yeah that was fun yeah it's good to see him again the occasional recycled character they usually do that with guys like uh the you know what's his face ian white who is was season two gregorical gain he was one one the giant he was you know, uh, another giant. I think he was Mag the Mighty also. <laughs> Talk about playing a lot of roles behind the scenes. <laughs> he was he was a White Walker. He was the first White Walker mm. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. That's true. Appreciate so, it. So once Gendry, you know, took off with Davos and Tyrion, he got to meet Jon, who in another world, they might have grown up friends. <laughs> yeah, this is another great conversation. And, of course, the under you can't miss the subtle undertone of, who, what really happened between their fathers instead yeah. of yeah, and then <laughs> their fathers and fought against each other, and then you know Robert fought Rhaegar and killed him. Yeah, so. whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a double conversation. Really, really fun to see that, and mm-hmm. and just I love the dialogue. You're thinner. You're shorter. I really like. I mean, that's the kind of thing that John should like, right? The the blunt honesty. He's that kind of guy. And, uh, you know, we talked about this on Monday that, that John, you know, slowly smiled into that. And then it occurred to me afterwards, how, mm-hmm. that might be the first time John smiled the whole time on Dragonstone, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. since he's gotten there. He's just, everything has been so serious. So, you know, he's either like amazed by the dragon or just bumming around because everything's awful or brooding <laughs> handsomely, like Tyrion <laughs> says, but he smiled. And I think that's, it's really hard to make John Snow smile. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> So, um, you wonder if it ever comes up. I wonder if Gendry and John both survive and John finds out who his real father was. I don't, they think that might become a problem or is it just probably they're going to be friends, you know? Yeah. I think at that point it will just be ancient history and, you yeah. know, the, the, whatever that happened and it was a result of a terrible misunderstanding, which presumably by that point, they, if they got to that point, they'd know. <laughs> all that stuff yep i uh, see someone in the chat saying that that was the first time john smiles someone else is backing me up on that so yeah. cool cool just got a super chat from perry no question included but we'll get to that if you put it in the chat yeah thanks perry but uh, on more subject of swords and all that uh we have the idea that you know jorah hasn't noticed that john has long claw necessarily yet because it has a different hilt yeah it has a different so. hilt i said 
Actually, I keep we keep saying hilt. We should be saying pommel. Oh, That's sorry, a different pommel, yeah, but yeah. you know, sword nerdery there. But <laughs> either way, it's a very different looking sword. And Jorah might not want to bring it up. I mean, he gave it up because of you know his shame, and he might be like, "Hey, that used to be my sword until I." Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you may not be excited to talk about that. <laughs> I think it'll just be a dark, broody look that passes yeah. between them. It may come. Yeah, Tyrion said, no one broods like you, Mormont. And like, I, I don't know. John I don't know. Well. I mean, you got to think John will bring it up. He's so honorable. He is forthright. Yes. I think he would have to bring it up to, to Jorah. But that said, it's not like we had him talk to Leanna Mormont about it. <laughs> so I don't true. know. Yeah, it's his. He's like, nah, it's my sword. I don't care. <laughs> this is my my blade. So speaking of John and Jorah, that is our next item up on the block here. What do you yeah. think about Jorah? People uh, have been wondering a lot, and we talked about it a little bit, but the question is still open. Jorah jealousy at all? Is that obviously? He's definitely jealous. He's <laughs> definitely not super happy about Danny being close to another man that uh, <laughs> is more of a a threat to him than maybe Dario was. He had to know that Dario could never be for the long term, could never actually be her consort, but John can actually be her husband. But John, as we've mentioned before in multiple episodes, just has everything that Jorah wants or should have, potentially. You know, he had a close relationship with his father. He has Daenerys. (laughs) You know, maybe he's got his sword. (laughs) (laughs) He's died and Jorah's only thought a lot about only thought he was going to die. But I wonder if there's going to be any conflict between the two of them on this mission or in the future in general. Like, maybe not on the mission, but maybe once they're back with Daenerys, if no one dies, that it'll be a point of conflict? Mm. You guys think it will be? Or do you think uh, Jorah will just have to make peace with Daenerys' decision? Grin and bear it, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, obviously we could sense the t- the testosterone rate. You know, we all could. Um, there was this you know, sizing each other up, <laughs> significant looks passing around. But it, it, I sense that there could be some confrontation when Jorah figures out about the sword. It, whether it will be, it just might be a brief thing. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think they both um, have shown that they see the long, you know, the, what's the long game. So, and, and we shouldn't forget how close to death the Jorah did come. Um, yeah. He's, he's got to have come back from that as a changed man. I mean, he's visually changed and in the show. I think that usually indicates something. So, uh, Co-writer Joe Buckley agrees. He thinks that, you know, Jorah is... On some level, Jorah understands that Danny is never happening for him. So this is, you know, he, his jealousy is a reaction. So it's one thing for him to have that reaction because he just feels so strongly. But it's another thing for him to act on it when he knows deep down that he's never marrying Danny or having any kind of romantic relationship with him, with her. I don't think he's holding out hope for that anymore. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I think I think Joe's right on that. I agree with him. Um, interesting little tidbit here that I wanted to talk about briefly is. In the north, Val, as in Wildling Val, who John maybe will have a little relationship with. Who knows? A lot of people are shipping that, and I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. She kind of freaks out over the issue of Grayscale when she sees Shireen. And Val doesn't freak out about anything. Val goes in the north by herself with a half-blind horse, willingly, to go find Tormund, even though the, the others are out there. She laughs at Selyse, you know, like to her face, basically. <laughs> and Selyse is all prissy and, you know, has soldiers with her and everything. So... But the thing she freaks out about is that Grayscale doesn't go away. It will, it, it only sleeps. 
And to me, I wonder if that's a connection to the White Walker somehow. I just don't, I don't think it's going to come, to, to be clear, I don't think Jorah's grayscale is going to wake up beyond the wall here. But I, it does make me think of that. Just the fact that Jorah, a grayscale carrier, is going beyond the wall made me think of that in the book. So it's, it's something that's still out there. That's something I've really thought about a lot that I'm, that puzzles me. And I really wonder where it's going. I've thought about the grayscale plot a lot and the show didn't really give us much to go on with, <laughs> with how it might play out in the book. So it remains very much a mystery. <laughs> something else different about Jorah besides uh, his skin tone, huh, Shay? Yeah, he's got his new clothes. <laughs> I'm sure if you look up Jorah new clothes, you'll find many like think piece articles about his new clothes and how he's doubled the number of clothes he's had. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I like the fact that his clothes are black. Yes. There's also that. Yeah, uh, he knows. He knows what's in style. What's in vogue right what's now. What's in, in vogue? What's in his future? He needs yeah. a Pepe Sylvia shirt or a Night King shirt. Night King will think will be confused and think he's on his team and not go after him. That'll enable Jorah to sneak up behind him. <laughs> Heck, someone needs a, a real lightsaber, you know? That'd work on White Walkers, I would think. <laughs> There's also that bit of going around social media about how a lot of those uh, Night's Watch cloaks are actually Ikea rugs. Did you yeah. guys see that? <laughs> uh, it wasn't a joke, apparently. I thought that was a joke, but apparently that's, that's uh, pretty accurate. Free, I guess Ikea got a free plug from Game of Thrones <laughs> there. So I thought it was kind of funny that, that all the time Danny needed a smart general... Jorah was gone. And the minute there's like an armistice, Jorah comes back. <laughs> it's like, your timing is a little wacky there, Jorah. And then he just goes and leaves when, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, this like very emotional scene for me. I'm a notorious Jorah disliker. I won't say hate. I won't go to that extreme. But I definitely don't like him. He drives me crazy. And so I was just face palming during this awkward embrace that they had multiple times <laughs> they were very close with each other so that was maybe my least favorite thing about the whole episode was that we had to see sentimental jorah yeah <laughs> what do you think yo boy well i was thinking about the books you know because we are booked to show so let's let's uh think about what the possibility in the yeah. books we've previously talked about you know could could jorah go to the night's watch it, it was um, his father's last wish, which he left with Sam. So that's that seems like you know very open possibility there. And um, going up north in the show is not a million miles away, is it? But in the books, I really prefer if he did go to the Night's Watch because there'd be significance in kind of taking a vow where you know you're not going to have a woman, mm. which has been his Achilles heel, and that would like make his arc make sense with Jaws words. His arc would then make sense in my opinion. And at the moment in the show, Jura's arc doesn't make any sense. It's just so confused. Like <laughs> the grayscale plot. I don't know what's going on anymore. Just just go send him up to to be eaten by the Night King. He's just flying all over the place. Yeah, he he was uh, he's this season's little finger with his going everywhere and doing things that aren't entirely clear why they're happening. Hopelessly <laughs> trying to be with some woman that doesn't want to be with him. You know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, now yeah, they are traveling awfully fast. I saw a really funny meme that was uh, the the distance that the White Walkers had traveled since you know hard home versus the distance that john snow had traveled since hard home and it was like oh, thousands and thousands of miles looping around all over the place i think it's pretty similar to the books too it's not just the show. Yeah, i mean yeah. not the john going around but it's no, just the john fact that around. the walkers have emerged you know in like 297 or 296 and the books start yeah. in like 298 and they still haven't 
you know, they attacked the fist of the first men, and they still haven't made it. They maybe they seems like they just got to Hardhome, if the if Cotter Pike's letters are any indication. So we'll have to see how long they take to get from Hardhome to the Wall in, in the books, but hopefully not a, as long. We got a super chat from Eric Harry. Wouldn't the Dothraki know Jorah from when the Queen burned their leaders and he rode with them back to Marine? Not only would he, he may, they may not know him, but the, he walks up and starts speaking Dothraki. They're going to be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they may have heard of him, but they may not know him on sight also, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess I wasn't picturing that when he like arrived at Dragonstone. He like, just was able to speak with them. Yeah. Um, I don't know that a lot of the Dothraki got to, you know, the entire Dothraki army got to see Jorah and learn who he was. So I can buy that it just, you know, these are some of the ones that didn't know him. (laughs) Because there are a huge number of them, apparently. Mm -hmm. So Jorah and Tyrion, yet another cool interaction here. It was very brief, but managed to get in both a laugh and some, you know, a little bit of a meaningful moment at the same time. The coin. Yeah, he gives them that coin uh, from their slaving days. There's you know, days of being slaves, which I uh, think that it's not quite as powerful as the coin Arya was given, but it was still a very nice memento, although I, I wonder what Jorah takes out of that. For myself, it would be hard not to look at that coin and think about how I'd been a slave and, you know, be grateful for every day that I'm alive. He might probably thinks about grayscale and just how his life has changed, I would imagine. It's probably a bummer of a reminder a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Buckley writes that he, th- he maybe expects that Tormund's for- uh, talking to Jorah in the way they did might foreshadow some sort of Night's Watch role, but that might be, like you said, that might be more likely in the books. At this time, you know, Jorah might just die beyond the wall, <laughs> and then that'll be it. And if he doesn't die beyond the wall, I don't know, I think he's still going to want to be with Danny, you know, as one of her advisors and stuff. I don't know if he's going to want to go to the Night's Watch just yet. Okay, we're maybe around halfway through. We've got a lot of questions saved up, and we'll, as always, we'll go beyond the two-hour mark by taking questions. A lot of the questions will be cut out of the episode to make it more manageable as a podcast episode, so I'm not up until 11 a.m. tomorrow morning editing. <laughs> Instead, I'll just be up till about 8 or 9 in the morning editing. That's That's a lot better. <laughs> and... So if you do want to get the extra Q&A and you're listening on podcast, I post it to Patreon as a little bonus. Uh, you can join Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Super cheap. So if you're interested in that, it's usually an extra 20 to 40 minutes of questions. It's both show the show only and book only. We post those up there like that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of patrons, we've got a few people to give shout outs to before we move on. Starting with House DeFazio of Troy, who sent in a PayPal donation and ask for that shout-out. That's always an available thing, option for you guys. If you don't want to use Patreon, we have a PayPal link as well. So does Radio Westeros. Both of us have PayPal links on our websites. And if you, from from our end, if you send us a, uh, a regular PayPal donation, we'll send you both of our patrons-only episodes, which is Aziz versus the Game of Thrones chapter uh, prologue and Aziz versus the A Feast for Crows prologue. Aziz is me, by the way. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> also, thanks to our... Northern Champions, who are the nine members uh, who represent our Northern candidacy here on Patreon. That includes Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, Winter's King, Lord of the First Men, Lady Air Ardras, Mother of Wolves, Sir Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Sir Brian, the Return, Knight of the Last House, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Song, and Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words or Wind, Deeds are stone. It always cracks me up how there's two winter's kings. Yeah, I know, right? They're they're always at war. It's eternal, <laughs> eternal war of winter. <laughs> and also thanks to our two blood riders, 
Kohokoi, master of the bow, called Sun Piercer, and Vorsaki, which is the Dothraki word for fire, or flame, rather, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt. Very cool, very cool. Thanks very much for those Blood Rider and Northern Champion supporters, and to everyone who supports both of our shows on Patreon or in any other way. So, let us get back to it. We've got... Where are we going to now? Let's go to the Citadel. The Citadel. Big news from the Citadel, huh? But, yeah. There's some talk here about Sam kind of acting like John, being a little impatient, being demanding, asking for unreasonable things, kind of like how Tyrion pointed out, that what John was expecting was unreasonable. And... Uh, as we talked about earlier, he doesn't know about his father and brother burning. Yeah, and we talked about deal. that idea that that might actually have some impact on his relationship with the Maesters. But also, he uh, has this great line where he talks about how he's tired of reading about the achievements of better men, which is what his father said to him at dinner, that that's what, that's what he was busy doing. So, my question here is, where are we going to see Sam next? Where is mm. he going, and where will we see him next? Because that can have two answers. He can stop some places along the way. Our co-writer suggests that dra that since Dragonglass is a big part of what he's been studying, that maybe it makes sense for him to go to Dragonstone, but it seems like so much of the Obsidian has already been mined and presumably shipped to the north, or a lot of it has been, or that's an ongoing thing. Yeah, it's, it's not really, really clear. not clear on whether John has communicated with Sam at all about any of this, told him that he's on Dragonstone. If he told him he was on Dragonstone, then yeah, Sam would very naturally want to go there, I think, but I don't think he knows. I imagine he wants to head... Back to the wall, you know, but there's so much in between him and the wall, like he could run into Danny's Dothraki army and they could take him to her, or he could run into the Unsullied, which seems pretty unlikely, but hey, it's, it's out there. Lady Gwen, what do you, what do you think? I agree with a couple things you guys said that, you know, Dragonstone is a strong possibility, at least maybe, maybe for where he intends to go, whether he ever gets there or not. He may also want to go north, but, you know, he's very carefully brought Gilly and say baby Sam south so he's not if his intention is to go into danger whether it be Dragonstone or north to back to the wall he's not going to want to take those two with him so I think short term especially if he learns about you know his father and his brother I think short term he'll go to Horn Hill and we'll get to see his mother again and have some sort of interaction there because he'll naturally want to try to leave Gilly and baby Sam at Horn Hill again. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if he doesn't hear about his brother and father, I don't think there's any chance he goes to Horn Hill because he left with right. the sword and <laughs> yeah. stolen the mad. So I, it really depends on how information travels to him. Well, here's another. Let me throw a curveball at you guys. This is something that maybe you all forgot. Sam promised Gilly they would never be apart again. Remember? Even if oh, he's going yeah, into you're danger. Right. You're right. Well, she yeah. was adamant, but she's the one who's like, it doesn't and matter how probably, dangerous it she is. She probably doesn't want to be separated from her little son, from little Sam. But it's possible that she could be convinced that he should be kept safe and that they will drop little Sam off there as that's, the new heir. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, what I was going to say. Yeah, if, if nothing else, they'd leave behind the baby with his doting grandma. Good old, good old Mance, king of uh, Lord of Hornhill, baby Mance, Manceling. He's a Manceling. Yeah. yeah. Yuck boy, what's your take on Sam and Gilly here? Oh, one thing I noticed was it's really nice to see, you know, Gilly's studying and learning to read through the series, 
and seeing that you know we're leading up to this annulment discussion now that <laughs> you know just the, the fact that she she learned and and you see the the kind of fruits of a labor and i realize it's not the first time is it because davos also learned to read with shireen and he had the same thing he he came up on a really important letter and that's why stannis ended up at the wall because of you know davos davos's um you know, new penchant for reading, reading the the letters <laughs> and the parchments. It's true. So I, th- I think there's a statement about reading from George here, and it's a little, or, or the the writers, it's a little bit on the nose, but it it doesn't come across like that because of I think the the humble nature of uh, Gilly and, da- and Davos's characters. That's a good point. You know, I never even thought to compare Gilly and Davos and their read learning to read. That's really cool. And let's see. So, yeah, I guess it's about time. Let's talk about the annulment. That's a big piece of news. I suspect a lot of you, this is the thing you most want us to hear hear us talk about. I'll tell you, we uh, almost had to get different guests for this week's book to show because Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy weren't quite able to make it on Wednesday, and that's why we changed Thursday. But we had entertained the idea of having someone else on for Wednesday but we just realized that we how can we not have Radio Westeros to talk about this R plus L equals J news? Yeah, because Lady Gwen knows R plus L equals J better than any of us. She is, uh, we could say, the resident expert here. So, so Lady Gwen, take us away. Tell us all you have to say about this big, huge revelation that I yelled out at the screen when it happened. I was like, you've got to be effing kidding me. <laughs> I watch... Um... Uh, Yoke Boy and I watch together in Rabbit. If any of you know what that is, it's a screen sharing service. So we always have a chat open while we're watching. And I just typed like a insane person, ha 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 ha, like about a hundred times. <laughs> like my Prince written Ragger. version of screaming out loud. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I want to say that our friend um, that we all met at, in, at Balticon last year and patron. Lady Storch pointed out that, you know, this is a purely meta moment. Sam has absolutely no reason to find this tidbit that Gilly inexplicably drops into their weird conversation significant. So um, it's definitely, you know, it's aimed at at us. Um, But I wonder if this subject comes up again in the company of someone like, say, his mother, if you're talking about him going to Horn Hill, she would... Um, had maybe have reason to know a thing or two um, and maybe deliver a couple more pertinent bits of information such as the fact that Rhaegar kidnapped Ned Stark's younger sister at the beginning of Robert's Rebellion so the, you know this is just a way of thinking you know how could Sam make something out of this information because as it is the, the, it means nothing to him and he's not really going to take it anywhere he has to meet up with someone that will bring it further for him. So um, the fact that this, you know, they talk about this uh, secret marriage. So Prince Ragar has <laughs> annulled his marriage to his wife and at the same time uh, had a secret marriage ceremony to some other woman performed in Dorne uh, by the apparent High Septon Septon Maynard. Yeah, and of course, the High Septons don't have names in the books, but that's obviously a pretty minor change. Yeah, yeah. Although it's funny that they chose Maynard, since the only Maynard I know of in the whole series is is Maynard Plum, which is Blood Raven in disguise. So (laughs) that's kind of funny. (laughs) Interesting name choice. I thought so too. I think it's funny that he had a record of this. 
Secret right, that he read. Well, and you pointed out too that they they took other little details. Like it wasn't just the main art which they pulled in from elsewhere. It's the little detail about him recording his bowel movements, which came uh, yeah. from another, like a Night's Watch Lord Commander. Yeah, um, uh-huh. some scrolls that Sam had found. So you know they did draw in all these little details from elsewhere in the text, which I always think is kind of cool when they're able to do that. I actually yeah. read those quotes on Monday. Those uh, the set, the uh, Lord Commander from the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the movie. Uh, except. Every day it started his, his it started with his, his bowel movement, except for the day he died, in which it started. He was found to have died in the night. <laughs> <laughs> Poor dude. That was good stuff. Great legacy. <laughs> I see Ian Tron saying that Septon Maynard James Keenan was a tool of the faith. Ha! That's a pun. <laughs> that's a pun worthy of uh, of our show. I think. Of course, that's the singer of Tool. So Maynard. Most of you probably knew that. But just in case you didn't, there you go. That's the I joke. definitely didn't. And I love Tool. I, oh, never, uh, I never know band member names. <laughs> Maynard Keenan. James Keenan, yes. Very good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so should we get back to secret marriages? Secret yeah, marriages, yeah. yes. Secret marriages, because that's the thing that has all... And we even referenced it in the episode um, last week, how much that has been a... Um, kind of a staple of RLJ theorists and um, kind of a point of contention with a lot of people who um, try to come up with other, you know, RLJ deniers, let's call them. (laughs) Um, Or just, you know, kind of equivocators, maybe. I don't know. Um, But so it's all the real, the hardcore RLJ theorists have always insisted that there was indeed a secret marriage. In my opinion, personally, has always been that a traveling septon would be the most likely sort of thing since we are actually introduced to specific examples of septons that just kind of travel along. This best example is Septim Maribald, who's introduced in Feast for Crows. And in fact, he happens to be my very favorite crackpot candidate because he's noted to have been traveling the Riverlands for more than 40 years. So he very well could have been right easily on hand uh, 15, 16 years ago. So... There's there's that. Um, all that said, there are a couple of um, possibilities here. Both are hinted in the text. Um, there is precedent for annulments. You have Tyrion and Tisha. Uh, you have the noted possibility of Tyrion and Sansa being annulled, which George has commented on. Um, and of course, in real life, any queen um, or, you know, spouse of of an heir to the throne who couldn't deliver an heir for the next generation was at risk of being set aside of you know annulment the best example that most people probably would be aware of is king henry the eighth and his first wife catherine of aragon so there's there's that so annulment is a strong possibility but we also shouldn't forget that rhaegar was a targaryen and it should need not have been really that complicated you know in in the text Polygamy was introduced to us for a reason, you know, most likely it has some sort of significance to the plot. It uh, could have been as simple as Prince Ragar just taking... <laughs> Ragar. <laughs> I'm going to call him that forever, by the way. Ragar Vance. Great. <laughs> it made me think of Hagar the Horrible. <laughs> Ragar the... A lot of people think Ragar is pretty horrible, so that works. People do. <laughs> but he was no Viking. <laughs> no. I'm just going to picture him with this little... He could have just taken a second wife, and it's a but that's a precedent that George has very cagely 
refused to rule out in the abstract. He's noted that Targaryens could do as they pleased at one time because of the dragons. And he's also indicated that there might be examples of polygamy in there in the family tree that he just has yet to identify or write about. So, mm. um, you know, in any case, a legitimate John is the point that many people in the fandom have insisted on for a long time and insisted that the presence of three Kingsguard at the Tower of Joy proves that John is legitimate. Shout out to my old friend Mountain Lion who did a great analysis of that that we featured in our RLJ episode. So um, as and as a legitimate son of Rhaegar and Lyanna, John becomes the ideal candidate for the prince that was promised and really embodies the Song of Ice and Fire, which I mean, Wood is their son anyways, that Song of Ice and Fire bit. But but but, but being a prince now, a literal prince, um, I was going to point out, now, now I can point to four um, criteria of the prince that was promised that John now fits. I know a lot of people for Danny or John and Danny, but let me give the case now for John. Okay, number one, he was a literal prince. Number two, he was promised at birth in that significant moment ah, where his mum's dying. Promise me, promise me, me yes. Ned. Of course, of course. No, number, three, number three, he's from the Ares-Riella line, which narrows it down to Danny or John, so we don't really get any further, but he, he fits that. He, but in a hidden way, you know, it's a twist that he fits that criteria. And number four, like Lady Gwynne says, you know, the Song of Ice and Fire, I mean, it suits him better than anyone because it's innate. You know, he's ice and fire. It's not that he's going to be in the snow fighting with fire. He's actually inherently ice and fire, which makes him, a, you know, a very strong candidate and my choice as well. I will say real quick that Danny technically is a little bit of ice as well with their Blackwood. A little bit. A little, yeah. little tiny, like, wait, not, not as much, but technically. <laughs> yeah. Just a tad, Sorry. for sure. <laughs> yes, no, I agree. Because it's almost like, you know, they, they were kind of the, this, like, almost there moments in the Targaryen family tree. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You almost have to wonder if, you know, if we'll find out that, you know, Aegon V also knew something about something or, or had a dream or something, that you know, about the First Men. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the Ghost of Highheart supposedly is the one who gave, who came to court. And I mean, certainly Bloodraven is special, you know, Mm -hmm. it seems he has these abilities and is... Same, same union of different, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go go on. But Yoko, yeah, you you had more to say here. Please continue. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it brings in, you know, which one's a red herring? You got three candidates now. You got John, you got Danny, or you got John and Danny. It's personal choice. But I'm just saying how RLJ reveals John to be, you know, a kind of hidden contender that can be brought out very late. And that's, in writing terms, very unusual to bring a red herring in to into proceedings so late. But um, he is emerging as an Arthurian figure now with this hidden heritage. So, you know, I, I know George has said that he's uh, influenced by King Arthur a lot, so... John being, you know, an Arthurian figure, I'd certainly keep my eye on him as the prince. Also, before you go any farther, there's one of the main influences of this story. George was inspired by the Dragonbone Chair series, 
and the main character is a lot like Jon Snow. Same kind of deal. He thinks he's a bastard, like, unknown, and later he finds out he's... A... Sorry, spoilers for the Dragon Ball he finds out. It's kind of <laughs> obvious. You're all so familiar with the trope when you start reading it. It's like, oh, this guy, this kid must be the father of the ki- son of the king or something. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you probably won't be able to... You probably, probably would have guessed that anyway if you do, do go read it. It's actually a pretty good series. There's a lot of parallels with Song of Ice and Fire. A lot. George, borrow, George borrowed a lot of small details from it. And, uh, yeah, that, that whole concept is... Uh, you wonder how George might invert this trope because it is a common fantasy trope, the hidden heir, you know, the, or like you said, it's an Arthurian thing. It's been around forever. So maybe George will find some clever way to kind of invert this trope um, in ways we have not yet foreseen. But speaking of things we did not foresee, Yoke Boy, you found this awesome reference, this another sneaky quote that now in retrospect has a lot more meaning, doesn't it? Yeah, this this is uh, again well known to kind of the RLJ hardcore people who have kind of mined, mined you know the full <laughs> text and looking for clues. Um, there is a, a kind of king in hiding secret theme, and there's, there's uh, two or three of these. Here's a quote from a Game of Thrones: "Kings are a rare sight in the North." Robert snorted. More likely, they were hiding under the snow. Snow, Ned exclamation mark kings hiding under snow <laughs> in our faces right in our face what you can't see uh by hearing your boy read it is that the second snow is capitalized i mean it is the beginning of a sentence but you know everybody has always found that significant as if it were a last name capital s-n-o-w john yeah so that's a big whopper isn't it that's awesome i love that i love finding these old i mean like you said this has been that quotes existed since 1996 r plus lj fans found this a long time ago so you know literally more than 20 years ago this quote was suspicious but now it finally has an extra you know bit added to it and maybe more to come but with the winds of winter now, as far as how did Rhaegar get this to happen? You know, how did he convince the High Septon to do this annulment? And, you know, what does annulment actually mean in Westeros? It's It's got a different context in the real world, a context that varies based on what time and country and uh, religion, all sorts of other factors that mean that we can't just look at the real world to get an idea because there's so many different uh, variations on this. But you can easily imagine the crown prince finding some way to convince the high septon that hey i'm gonna be king soon you know you got to do this for me or and or you know my father's crazy he's on the way out like i'm gonna be king pretty soon don't you know that don't you know don't do the things that i want and i'll do some things for you it's a lot it's just without knowing what the specifics are it's pretty easy to imagine that Rhaegar shouldn't have too much trouble doing this like maybe a really really uh, like Stannis-like High Septon would be like, nah, this is, you know, we don't do this sort of thing ever. But if he's at all like a player, which, let's be honest, most characters are, most High Septons are. I mean, the previous High Septon in the beginning of the book, the one that's killed by the riots, is a, you know, extremely greedy, overweight guy. You know, these guys, it seems like bribery is entirely possible here. Bribery, threats, mm-hmm. encouragement, just, or all of the above. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to see. The specifics are, are not there, but it's easy to see. Yoke Boy, what else did you have here? I know you have some more thoughts on um, how this compares book to show, right? I, I should have said this earlier, but I didn't want to ruin the flow. Just going going in uh, reverse gear for a moment. There's certainly grounds to wonder if D&D have made up this annulment part. So as a book reader, I wouldn't get too carried away with this component because like Lady Gwynne said, it could just be polygamy, right? 
Um, I did just see Elio and Linda, who, you know, you, you know they're, they're not George or they don't speak in George's voice, but but they have been around for a long time. They're very experienced and they are convinced that the annulments would not ex exist in, in that way in Westeros. So it's worth keeping in mind. It, it, the, I, I watched that video too, Elio and Linda's. It was interesting because Elio doesn't usually comment on show stuff these days. And uh, Linda's not a big fan of the show in general. But um, there's the annulment issue is interesting because there are examples in the Song of Ice and Fire timeline of both of people asking for their wives to be set aside and of the conversation coming up. So we know it's possible. It just we just don't know of an example of it necessarily happening. And that might establish precedent. So I don't know. We'll see. There's uh, a couple of questions we have here that I picked out that, that might fit here or that do fit here very well. And well, the first one is from Jeff Nerley, the Long Snapper. So now that we've had a few days to, for the, oh, wow, initial reaction of Rhaegar and Lyanna being secretly married to Settle, or did he maybe marry John Connington? <laughs> what are some of the pros and cons of this revelation, in your opinion, both in terms of how it could affect the characters and the story as a whole? Um... The book on the book side, of course, it's still really hard to figure because we don't know that this is really going to even be the case at all. But in the show, it's hard to figure because there's, I mean, yeah, it makes John legitimate, but does he? How is this going to come out? Are the are the Archmaesters going to find this book later? Did Sam bring it with him, or is it just fan service just to show us that John is legitimate? You know, um, because it's not like there's an egg on in the show for him to be bumped ahead of, right? I think we're going to have to see Howland. I know people think that we're not going to see him again. I've read that quite a few times, but I think we need someone that was there, you know. I, I don't think Bran's enough with his, you know, psychic abilities. I think we need Howland to roll, roll, roll back up to Windsorville with Mira. Yeah, I hope so, too. We really want to see Howland. <laughs> That'd be really nice. Uh, good way. Good. And of course, that's one of the most popular reasons why we'd ever expect to see him again. So I'm with you there. Another question from Carrie Neves. With the others to deal with and the possibility that there won't be enough people left in the end to bother with kings, let alone have multiple people left trying to claim the throne, and then John's reluctance to rule added to the mix, is John's legitimacy even relevant? Now, again, this is this is show perspective, but it, it can obviously relate to the books as well. His legitimacy in the books, it could be very relevant because there's a Fagon in play, but I think Danny might just kill him anyway in the long run because mm -hmm. of the Slayer of Lies bit. Um, and I don't expect John and Danny to ever, you know, fight over such a thing. So I don't know that it's relevant in the, you know, which may, might be evidence that it won't happen in the book. In the show, it's hard to see it being relevant too, because is he John going to sit the Iron Throne at the end? Is John, is there going to be an Iron Throne at the end? It's just a, it's a lot of roadblocks to this, to this mattering. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I think just because we can't see how it will be relevant, I, I, I don't think that's, kind of sufficient grounds to kind of like write it off as something that, that is meaningless. I think what I mean is, you know, if it's there in the books, George has planned this and, it, you know, he'll be looking for impact. He's described RLJ as the central mystery. So expect it to have impact. I don't see it. Oh, John's legitimate. Let's get on with it. I expect John to, you know, have a personal identity choice. So it works on thematic level and I expect it to have a political connotation by the end. Cool. Cool. Any more uh, thoughts on that, Lady Gwen? No, I, I agree with, with that. I think, you know, it will have some sort of relevance, whether it's, you know, 
just related to being, you know, the central figure in the end game or, or some sort of political relevance where, you know, it, it aids him in that, um, in that end game. Yeah. Um, I do expect it to matter though. So maybe to summarize our various answers, you could say that <laughs> it's hard to see how it will be relevant at this point because mm-hmm. there's so many mm-hmm. things in the way, but it's hard, also kind of hard to imagine that it won't be relevant, even though the answers might be obscured at this point. So yes. uh, maybe that's where we'll leave it for now. George R. R. Martin has actually weighed in on the issue of annulment uh, with regards to T- Sansa and Tyrion, not with regards to this, but of course his comments might uh, might be relevant. He mostly says that you don't have to be present for the annulment. You don't need both parties present for the annulment, which means that Elia didn't have to be there or consent to it even, especially considering that her husband was the crown prince. So the kind of you expect the higher ranking person, especially the son of the king, to have a lot more sway there. And it, once Rhaegar is the king, he can do what he wants. He can. The king is always above the law. That's just, that's just how it works in these in these societies. He the law is what it is, but the king can temporarily suspend it or or just put himself above it, etc. So we'll have to wait and see. I'm kind of guessing there won't be any more movement on that in episode six, but maybe there's some talk of it in episode seven. And if John ever gets to talk to Bran, that'll, it's bound to come up again. Bran's been saying, I need to talk to John. So (laughs) that'll have to come up maybe at some point. That was a really good, uh, I thought that was a really good chat of RLJ. Then it's really nice to talk about it because me and Lady Gwyn have been talking about it all week. So, um, yeah. can I can yes. I just take a second to tell the watchers that we we Radio Westeros have an episode all about RLJ about you know what what we think the evidence is gathered you know all that kind of thing a really complete episode on it and it's uh, episode five of our podcast if if you fancy a listen yeah highly recommended I've certainly listened to it and I might have to go back and give it another listen now that it's uh, become come up again and episode five for you guys that's a while ago huh <laughs> oh yeah it was almost three years ago yeah and it did uh you know it featured uh contributions from some of the denizens of the rlj threads at westros.org so yeah. we had a lot of a lot of good uh good contributors a lot of helpers there, there. yeah a lot of good thinkers mm-hmm. a lot of people who put a lot of brain power into this problem for a long time because r plus l equals j isn't some sort of mystery that's evolved over time in the fandom. I mean, it has evolved, but it was, what I mean is that it was there right away. It's, it's right there in Game of Thrones. Like the bulk of it is there in the first book. There's certainly more of it later, but the majority of the evidence for it is this right there in book one. So since 1996, mm-hmm. folks. <laughs> yeah. Also in that scene with the Archmaesters, you know, going back to that, I can't help but talk about this because it's these cool history references. And they're giggling about both Jenny of Oldstones, who we talk a lot about Jenny of Oldstones. She talks, you know, the reference there is that she claims that her friend was a, you know, descended from the, a child of the forest. They're laughing about this, but it's almost, in, almost certainly true. The ghost of Highheart is who they're talking about. The ghost of Highheart, the one that gives Arya all these visions and she's like three feet tall and has red eyes. I mean, she is absolutely part child, I think. And mm-hmm. that's, this is the same person, the ghost of Highheart, who went with Jenny and Duncan the Small, which is the first son of Aegon the Fifth, who is, of course, Egg, and came to court saying that this is your, you know, she's the one that told them that their line would have the prince that was promised. The Ghost of High Heart is the one who gave that prophecy to them. Get that, you know, that's a pretty big deal. 
Aziz, I, I've heard some really cool theorizing about this that that Rhaegar and the Ghost of High Heart could have been in contact because she yes. always wants to hear Jenny's song. Well, the theory goes that they were talking about this prophecy, you know, in the ruins of Summerhall where he was born, and you know, she she um, lost Jenny, her best friend. And the idea is that Rhaegar wrote Jenny's song, and that's why she loves it so much. She likes to hear it from the Brotherhood Without Banners. I thought that was a really good theory. Not mine. Yeah, that's, that I, is I a good it. theory. Uh, so in addition to the on-point plug for Radio Westeros' R plus L equals J episode, I'm going to plug real quick our Summerhall episodes. we got two of those. We go into a lot of detail about the Ghost of High Heart, about Summerhall itself, of course, and Rhaegar's birth, and a lot of that stuff. So... Maybe uh, listen to all three of those these ways this weekend, guys. <laughs> Lots of good stuff for you. It's all coming back around you told again. yourself. <laughs> Speaking of coming back around again, the other reference, the other thing the Archmaesters were ridiculing. Now, this I'm with them on. This is funny. I've got a quote prepared. This is about Laudas, the priest Laudas. When that guy says, ah, Laudas. And it's, it's, like, it's a bunch of nerds laughing about a silly prophet. And I got to agree, this guy is pretty pretty silly. A barefoot holy man called Laudas, who claimed to be the living son of the drowned god. And then, on Old Wick, the priest king Laudas turned to his <laughs> god, calling on the krakens of the deep to drag down Aegon's warships. When the krakens failed to appear, Laudas filled his robes with stones and walked into the sea to take counsel with his father. Thousands followed him. Their bloated corpses washed up on the shores of the isles for years to come, though the priest's own body was not amongst them. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> And then that's that's during the egg on the conqueror's reign. And then years later, we have this follow-up quote when there were rebellions that broke out when Aegon the Conqueror died. One such revolt convulsed the Iron Islands, led by a man claiming he was the priest king Lados, returned at last from visiting his father. But Goran Greyjoy dealt with it decisively, going so far as to send the priest king's pickled head to Aenys Targaryen. <laughs> love that little anecdote there. <laughs> I love being able to share historical tidbits. That really... <laughs> Tickles me. Yes. <laughs> right I in my Night's King. Like the pickle head. I thought you were going to say that it pickles you. <laughs> Damn it. I missed a pun opportunity. Oh, that no. obvious. Ah. That's great. Failure. Let's talk about the Lannisters. Jamie and Braun coming out of the river. Yes. Yeah, drove me crazy. Maybe not the best uh, resolution of that. But. Yeah. Just, I said it as a joke last week. I know. <laughs> Just, uh. All I could think of when they showed the wall, I was like, no. <laughs> it's just Matt, Ron just like, pulling uh, it by the scruff of the neck. Yeah, it was like, all right, bed. well, yeah. <laughs> no Dothraki anywhere, no anyone anywhere. It took them that long to get there. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever, we'll move past it. But Yeah, it's not worth <laughs> dwelling on. <laughs> it's fine. Like, so Bronn's placement here is interesting. He says that he's not interested and in, he's like, I'm not fighting for y'all anymore because of dragons. But he also is like, I'm not you know, I'm getting what I'm owed. I want my castle, you know? So what does that mean? Is Bronn with him still, or is he not with him still? I don't, I'm not really clear on that, but. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he's yeah. uh, with, um, do any of you, are any of you Narnia fans? Chronicles of Narnia? It's, it's, in, it's back in the head. In the, in, back yeah, in the days. in the back of my head, yeah. So there's not, just, just fame, at the very, in the last battle, the final book in the series, there's these black dwarves who, First they shoot at the good guys, then they shoot at the bad guys, and the best line is um, somebody says, "What are you guys doing? You're you know you're on the wrong side." And they say the dwarves are for the dwarves. 
So whenever I see someone who's like Braun, that's my opinion of Braun. And he's Braun is for Braun. So well, I think we just figured it out, right? Varus is not the merman. Braun is. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll have to just wait and see on, on Braun and, and what he does and whether Cersei, you know, kind of makes Jamie do something to him. Oh, we got a, a cat earthquake going on. Yeah, right we do. Um, Catquake. <laughs> yeah, Catquake. So how about Jamie and Tyrion getting together? That was some fantastic acting, huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm nodding. nodding. I'm sorry. Visuals. <laughs> yes, it was. They're, they're great acting left us all speechless. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the takeaway here. And I got. I'm, I was happy to see the dragon skulls again. Yeah. Um, I was just bothered during this scene because it's just. I, I'm still just reminded of how uh, they don't have this conflict between them about Taisha or anything like that. I don't know. I was more distracted thinking about. Oh, I guess this is why they didn't have that. I don't know. Like yeah. why they didn't have that conflict is for this reason. Yeah, that's a good point. And and uh, Joe Buckley points out that Tyrion often uses humor as a bridge or or to break down barriers or as like an icebreaker as like a normal people would in a conversation that's kind of awkward. But in this case, he he suggests that Tyrion ends up more acting kind of vulnerable and mm-hmm. admitting to himself and Jamie how much of an effect their father had and and kind of leveling with him like look what choice did I have it was it, it was actually him or me and he's my father and he knows I'm innocent like what the heck man <laughs> and uh yeah so Jamie doesn't really want to hear it but you can kind of see that he's a bit ashamed by the whole thing and doesn't really know exactly how to react but except for in frustration um so yeah it's it's a really I thought it was a really good scene. It was good, and in, in especially, and then that we didn't really get to see the what came after that. You just saw the you saw the beginning of them talking, and then you know the resolution. Yeah. Kind of, we we don't see what happens between them after that first couple of moments. Yeah, it was one of the big, one of many large reunions, but this one was one of the more contentious ones. One of the uh, most of the other reunions were happy reunions, or like, hey, they're together again. You know, this is like, ooh, what's gonna mm-hmm. happen here? And then we go to Jamie and Cersei, and they're, you know, Jamie's like, no, <laughs> the Dothraki are going to kill us all, the dragons, she's got three of them. It's just, he was very down. But Cersei le- points out, so, you know, if we, what do you, what do you mean we can't win? What choice do we have? We can't surrender, they'll just kill us anyway. We have to fight on. And uh, he tells her, you know, interrupts that to mention what happens with Elena and, and Joffrey. And Lady Gwen, you have some thoughts on this? Well, her, you know, her reaction, um, I thought that this would at least cause some kind of cognitive dissonance with Cersei as far as her position on Tyrion, because she's been so, you know, she's had this kind of vendetta against him for killing her precious son all this time. But she really doesn't change her position. I mean, granted, he then, you know, he then went on to kill their father. Uh, but so this does not change her position on Tyrion one bit. It leads her to regret letting Jamie be merciful to Elena. But, you know, she she just redirects all that anger at Elena without missing a beat or letting Tyrion off the hook really at all for anything. So, Yeah. And this whole bit about punishing Bronn is, is interesting. Um 
Okay, I, I couldn't believe she let Tyrion go, even though she knew he was there. Well, I think she knew after the fact. I think she heard, like, okay. the spies said Tyrion was there and Ron and Jamie had this meeting. Yeah, I don't think she was aware of it when it happened. I mean, if she did, then it is weird. But I, I, I think of it that she found out after it happened and... Uh, I assumed explains, that that was how... Which would how, explain why Tyrion was let go. <laughs> yeah, I assumed that's what we were supposed to think, because yeah. if we overthink it, then it doesn't make sense. And I'm wondering, this is an open question, I don't have an answer for this, but I'm wondering, given Cersei's talking about how broad her network has gotten, which makes sense that Kyber's had a while to establish himself and get even longer and longer, but what else does she know that she hasn't told Jamie? Because this is, mm-hmm. we've never seen their, their relationship be more inequitable. Like, she's really just in charge now, and Jamie's just really just going along with it. Like, like Olena pointed out to him, she's like, You're, this is all out of your control now, isn't it? And he's like, yep. <laughs> so, yeah. So this armistice idea, I think that Tyrion's plan's pretty bad here to trust Cersei. Um, it's one thing to trust Jamie, but to trust Jamie to control Cersei and to trust Cersei to hold her end of the bargain, when especially when she's losing, is just kind of, I don't know, short-sighted would be a nice thing to say, but I think it's just dumb. I think Tyrion is just out of his mind here, thinking maybe he's just emotionally over-trusting his family, even though he's never trusted Cersei, really. So... Mm-hmm. And sir, and here comes Cersei talking. We got to be clever. We got to be like, do like father would. And that just obviously that sends off like red wedding bells or something like that. Um, you guys have any thoughts on Cersei being planning some sort of clever revenge here, or do you think she's just going to make a move without being specific? How did you guys read that? Oh, I'm worried that she's got something up her sleeve. I mean, she always seems to. I also assume that at some point she's going to have something up her sleeve that backfires, and. And or doesn't work out for her. I think, you know, playing with fire as she does like uh-huh. to do <laughs> is pretty dangerous. And, you know, whether it's wildfire or dragons, I think she's got to be very careful with her plans. My, my top pick might be that she somehow tries to assassinate Danny. I don't know if Danny would even show up to some meeting, but if she does, that would be, you know, maybe that's what she's going to aim to do. We'll see. And of course, Kyburn would be involved in that, I'm sure. <laughs> Him being the cleverest man Cersei's ever known. You know, if they're going to do a clever plan, of course he's involved. Another huge revelation in this episode. Uh, Cersei's pregnant. Whoa, that was really surprising. I just kind of got it in my head that since book Cersei's been aged up so much that that was, she was maybe past her childbearing years. But clearly not. Clearly not. <laughs> I mean, there's a chance she was lying, but I really, really don't think she's lying because... The, the quiet dialogue between Kyburn and Cersei, which our, I believe our friend Kim Renfro and some others researched what was being said there. Kyburn mm-hmm. is saying, I can get you something for that. And Cersei says, I, that won't be necessary. So it yeah. really sounds like they're yeah, having a conversation yeah, about if, pregnancy. If, for instance, she want, was mm-hmm. lying and wanted to convince Jamie that she wasn't, maybe she would stage that, but she wouldn't stage for him to say something that unspecific. Yeah, I don't think so, I don't even think he heard that. I mean, exactly, I don't know that I don't he even think that. he heard yeah. it. So, and it wasn't yeah. very specific. So, all around, I don't think you can even say that that was a ploy by Cersei to have Kyburn there. I think it. I think that proves that it's it's legit. Hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Lady Gwen, given that, what uh, what do you think? Well, my thoughts were like you know this the, that very pointed and somewhat aggressive sex scene with with Cersei and Jamie, um, and the contrived discovery by the serving girl the next morning really makes a lot more sense now. Um, you know whether you think that it's maybe a, a ploy to give a child a father 
you know, that people, some people saw, or whether it was, you know, that's just the explanation was that, you know, for us to see that they actually had sex. And so it, it furthers the parallel with Aries rape of uh, Ryala, doesn't it? Because it's implied that that's the night when, uh, mm. when Daenerys was conceived. And, and we've talked about how that aggressive s- sex right. scene, um, you know, There's kind of parallel was yeah. somewhat like, yeah, it's like a toned down movie. version of that. Yeah. With, with, with the <laughs> same result. And, <laughs> There have been Cersei book pregnant theories, haven't there? I mean, I think most people kind of brush it off as well. Cersei's Cersei getting older pregnant. and she's drinking a lot, so of course her gowns are going to get bigger. But check, but Lady Gwen's got this very on point quote that refers to that. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of them, and this is probably a theory that goes back. Oh, you know, it's got to go back ten Feast for years Crows now. Time. Yeah, these yeah. Are, these are from these are from Feast for Crows. Um, there's there's one. These are from Cersei's point of view, and they're they're you know things that she's thinking in her head. Her she's talking about a gown or gowns. Her wretched washerwomen had shrunk several of her old gowns, so they no longer fit. And she's really just so aggravated. She wants to whip these washerwomen. She ends up making them pay for her gowns. <laughs> by the brutal. way, proving that she's a really <laughs> horrible person. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is. It had been several years since the last time she had donned it, this particular gown she's thinking about, and the queen found it uncomfortably tight about the middle. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, these theories are rooted in the fact that she is known to have slept with at least Osney Kettleblack and uh, Moonboy, for all I know, as her brother likes (laughs) to say. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, she's slept around. She's slept with a lot of different people in the books, and she it's not so true in the show. She doesn't sleep around in the show like she does in the books. Right. But she's so, yeah, she's very indiscreet in yeah. the books, which is kind of one of the charges that's leveled against her by the mm-hmm. faith, because it is, it's treason for a queen to, you know, have have sex with someone who's not the yeah. king. So. And uh, she kind of spins it like, oh, it was after Robert died and blah, 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 you know, and she, yeah. she never does. Oh, except for, she doesn't cop to Except Jamie. for Lancel. Yeah, yeah well, she does cop yeah, to Lancel. Well. She can't get around that one because Lancel's a, yeah, <laughs> Lancel's a witness. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and um, what about, did you, Yoke Boy, did you have some thoughts on um, this as well or did we cover that already? Uh, no, I, I, I was thinking of, you know, the, the book canon and I, I very interested in prophecies. I kind of know them all by heart, as everyone else does out there. <laughs> and it, it occurred to me that that Cersei might wish to be pregnant for no other reason than, than it might forestall the Valenqua prophecy. Mm. It might, in her mind, she's looking to cancel this damn prophecy that's haunted <laughs> her. And if she could have a fourth child, the the prophecy's wrong. So in her mind, it would forestall it. So mm. so I'm just throwing it out there that that's that's one of the reasons why she should be motivated to become pregnant. I think. I see someone say, uh, "Calling it now." Cersei gives birth to a dwarf and dies. Killed well, that's by what the, the next thing brother. we were going to talk to you about uh, was. Is, cool. Uh, well, it's not quite yes. the next thing, but we can move on to that question, <laughs> which is, will she actually have this baby? Mm. And there's been theories about her dying mm. via pregnancy or having a dwarf, because if she died via pregnancy, technically, it would be Jamie killing her in some sense. Mm. It would be quite ironic. I, I, I would like it a lot. Um, I hate women dying in childbirth mm-hmm. as a trope in A Song of Ice and Fire and in media in general. But this right here would, would just be deliciously perfect. It would it would be too good. <laughs> yeah, and 
they do have time, right? Okay. Because even though it's the long term, they could like there's nothing stopping them from the the show taking a time jump. Yeah, I mean um, we've already had huge swaths of times time clearly pass. Gilly's baby won't grow at all in that time, but <laughs> other <laughs> other other kids will. <laughs> but uh, another question we have is, role. you know, what Euron might think about this. Whether Euron will even know. It's not like she'll be showing for quite some time. Plus, there's the off chance it's actually his child, which is yeah. it's a small chance, but it's got to be considered. Yeah. I, I very much doubt Cersei is given up her power or been alone with Euron. I agree. Uh, she's holding him at arm's length. Um, that was that's clearly what she was saying. Like, ah, oh, you'll get what you want when we win the war. So, I, I, I don't think that. Yeah, and there's also not much reason to think that he's even been back to King's Landing since the, the their you know, his expedition to to bring in his uh, prisoners and all that. Of course, they could have lived together then as well, but it doesn't seem all that likely because Jamie was there at the time too. Um, now, since there's a possibility, but if if we're entertaining the idea that it's Euron's, since there's a small chance that Cersei and Euron could be a thing in the books. This could be a thing in the books, too. A Cersei and Euron shot. I think it's a pretty long shot, but it's it's absolutely, you know, something worth considering. Uh, but there's not much we can say about it other than throwing it out there as a possibility. Mm-hmm. We have a question. Kai Burns. Kai Burns' child. Oh, my God. I didn't think of that. Ew. <laughs> yikes, yikes. <laughs> Dana the Dreamy asked the question, If Cersei acknowledges Jaime as the baby's father, what's preventing her from going all out Targaryen and marrying both Jaime and Euron? When Aegon first came to Westeros, what was done in the eyes of Westeros? Uh, Westerosi, polygamy or incest? Well, damn, I mean, she would be checking off both of those boxes there. That's really interesting. She certainly doesn't care what people think. Like, that's the first thing she says to Jamie's like, the lion doesn't concern itself with the opinions of the sheep. And Jamie's just so overwhelmed in the moment that he's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. We don't. <laughs> uh, nothing's preventing her from that. It's just a matter of whether she can get away with it politically or whether the population will... I mean, she killed all the faith. The faith isn't around to contest it so <laughs> i don't know she maybe she spins it well enough that she's fighting against the foreign invaders that she can i need two husbands to fight this <laughs> i don't know <laughs> there's nothing stopping her i'll say that i don't i don't know that i would predict this to happen but nothing's actually stopping her from doing it i think the thing stopping her would be jamie's <laughs> okay that's a thing you're right you're right. a lot of people have also brought up of course the valencar prophecy and lady gwen you had something to say about whether that really stops her from carrying a child to term mm. i do uh, i think you know the the part because it's been so very specific um that part of, of the prophecy that states that she will have three children gold will be their curls and gold their shrouds is you know, and it, it's been right on about that, and it's been right on about Robert's children. So it's critically, it's not about the children they have together. It's about just the numbers of children they have. And I think that really rules out her carrying another child to term in the books. Although, importantly, in show canon, they have, even though they chose to include yeah. that about the three children... Um, they had, before they included that, they had already stepped outside of that by having this made up male child that she bore for Robert, um, in the first season. So, yeah, I know myself, I just have chosen to believe that Cersei's a liar. Yeah. She, she lied (laughs) to her. That's, that's my choice, but I can't remember if they said anything, you know, outside the show about whether she was telling the truth. Like, I, I can't remember when she said that, if there were some interviews where they made it clear that it was the truth or not. But uh, I, I I will choose to believe that it's a lie. 
Yeah. I, I believe that that child has actually got I, a yeah. wiki or a wikia page. It's, it's Gendry. It's actually Gendry. Oh, everybody loves that theory. So, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. he says his mother had golden hair. <laughs> so, what? Another question comes here, Yoke Boy. We were talking earlier. We we briefly talked about this before because of a super chat. The idea of Kyburn and the Army of the Dead and what he thinks of it all. And but you had a, another thought that I don't think we touched on earlier, which is you know. What is John? What will John think if he meets, you know, Robert Strong or something? <laughs> yes. So John's going risking, you know, these seven guys risking their lives. I'm sure, you know, at least a couple of them aren't coming back. Probably most of them. And, you know, tra travel with a white. This is the plan. Travel with a white <laughs> from Eastwatch to, to yeah. King's Landing, where, where they're kind of at war with Cersei. And... There, when John arrives, is a dead zombie stood guarding <laughs> Cersei. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I, I don't know if this is some kind of oversight yeah. or whether it's going to, you know, be commented on. But but yeah, it, it, it's, it's strange. It's it's a bit of a waste of journey. I think I think Cersei knew that the army of the dead were real from what kind <laughs> of yeah, yeah. she should find it more believable, and Kyburn should find it more believable than most with with Robert Strong there. I just do, do see one correction or a clarification rather in the chat where people are saying that Cersei said the thing about the baby, the little baby they had to Robert as well. They, so she couldn't have lied to him. Yeah, Robert so, remembered so, it too. Yeah, remember our baby I, boy. I, I, uh, anyways, maybe the prophecy is just inaccurate. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think they just chose to forget that part <laughs> when they came around finally to the prophecies. Okay, so unless there's any more about Kyburn, Cersei, King's Landing, Euron, uh, the baby, or any of that, it's time to go to Winterfell. This, this story is a little contained. It doesn't, this is the one storyline that doesn't really touch on any of the others right now where all the others are really mixing with each other quite a bit especially with Tyrion talking to Jaime and the armistice the two big sides going up against each other but meanwhile Winterfell's kind of uh, isolated at the moment in more ways than one the lords are upset that uh, Jon's gone this Glover I, gosh Lord Glover really is just uh, flighty isn't he he just really can't make up his mind <laughs> I mean, he was the first one to pledge to John, like, forever, blah, 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 I should have answered the call. Now he's already talking about electing Santa. This guy just... Yeah. This is not a typical yeah. northerner, I don't think. <laughs> I think Leanna Mormont needs to have another talk with him. Yes. If, if, he, if she had been there, she would have been like, hey, what are, what is this nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, Lord Glover. <laughs> but interestingly, I think this, is, this speaks to the scene a little bit. I can kind of understand, like, I do not you know, back Arya on, on her words here. But I do kind of see where she's coming from a little bit. Like, why wasn't she more emphatic with her rejection of mm. this talk? Because this was vaguely treasonous. And not even vaguely treasonous. Santa should have been like, should have. I can see from Arya's point of view saying, why wasn't she like, no, not even, not a chance. Yeah, I, John I, is our king, right. period. You know? Whereas I can see right. why Sansa might be a little more uh, restrained about it all because she needs to keep things together. And that's what Arya accused her of. I was like, you're not keeping it together because you need to keep it together. You're keeping it together so you can keep these, so you don't piss these people off so they'll follow you. And I, I agree, that's maybe Arya's going too far there. But mm -hmm. just playing devil's advocate, I can kind of see why it, it, Arya would be, I, I can't understand why Arya would be telling 
Hirsch to cut people's heads off. That's going way too far. And it's just dumb. Yeah. I mean, not dumb like bad writing. I mean, it would be dumb for Sansa to do that or for Arya to do that on her own, which maybe is, yeah. maybe is a possibility that Arya will take it into her own hands. Um, but then there's Jan Royce, you know, also saying that, hey, we came here for, for you, not for Jon Snow. And, uh, yeah, uh, they are not going to be, this is not going to help if they learn where Jon is now. <laughs> he does all this without coming back to talk to them, you know, uh, yeah. Um, I wonder if that's going to be more of a thing. Do, Lady Gwen, do you have any thoughts on, on this? What my actual thoughts were, about what Ari and Sansa said to each other, and it was really just a, a little tiny thing that I'm not sure if everybody caught, um, where Sansa's reply to Arya about all of this stuff, which I agree with a lot of the things Arya said. And again, I think she was a bit extreme, but you know, I, I do think she was correct to call Sansa out. Um, that Sansa's kind of she's trying to walk the center line a little too finely, you know, but. Uh, Arya said, or Sansa's reply to her after all this was, I don't want to just sit around and wait for John to come home like Ghost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've all been wondering where Ghost was, and apparently yeah. he's just waiting. lying in a room somewhere, waiting patiently. Hanging out in <laughs> Yeah, it was a great line. Although it reminded me of, like, what a great reunion scene that would be. I would love to see Arya interact with ghosts. Wow. I know. I know they're trying to save that budget and not have the ghost CGI, but I feel like Arya would get home and she would ghosts would follow her around everywhere, I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, because of John's affection for her. John's yeah. wolf. Yeah, Anyways. their connection. And that would make her more intimidating even. Yeah, it would. <laughs> you know? It would be great if she just walked around with this massive white wolf. Yeah, yeah that would be pretty cool. She's really kind of acting like, you know, it, it references really well what we talked about last week with the Valyrian, with the cat spot dagger being kind of a stand-in for Dark Sister. Because Arya's really acting like Dark Sister here with all her talk of head cutting off. <laughs> and then we get to this little little finger part. And it's interesting setup here. Um, Yoko, why don't you talk about this a bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to explain the letter because I know there's some people who didn't quite get it. So... This letter was sent in season one by Sansa, but she was under duress. Ned was in the Black Cells and Cersei was overseeing this. And it alluded to Sansa having Lannister loyalties and she's telling Rob to bend the knee to, you know, King Joffrey, the best king, whatever, whatever Cersei wanted. So Sansa did this, you know, thinking she was... uh, you, you know, doing her bit. She didn't realize how manipulated, uh, you know, and that she didn't have a choice. Now, now Littlefinger's using this to, to get in between the Starks. Here's the letter. I'll read it. Rob, I write to you with a heavy heart. Our good King Robert is dead, killed from wounds he took in a boar hunt. Father has been charged with treason. He conspired with Robert's brothers against my beloved Joffrey and tried to steal his throne. The Lannisters are treating me very well and provide me with every comfort. I beg you, come to King's Landing, swear fealty to King Joffrey and prevent any strife between the great houses of Lannister and Stark. Mm. I think it's it's important to remember right away when uh, it, they read that, uh, uh, Kat said Sansa's Sansa's hand, Cersei's words. Mm-hmm. So. And Rob at the books is irritated that there's no mention of Arya. And you wonder if Arya mm. will be irritated at no mention of Arya. Arya. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> 
might come up. I, but this isn't going to work, though, is it? I mean, Littlefinger is, is looks pretty. It's fairly masterful what he's pulled off here, but I just don't think it's going to work. I mean, I think it might cause some friction, and maybe some of that friction will be long, you know, kind of permanent relationship damager, or maybe Arya kills someone, not Sansa, but someone, and. Yeah, I still don't think it's going to work, though. Partly because of the lying game. Like, Arya is really good at detecting lies, and as good as Littlefinger is at lying, uh, I think the truth will come out because Arya is good at detecting it. Yeah, I wonder, yeah. though, if the truth will come out or whether Arya just knows instantly reading it. She's like, this was under mm. duress. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I'm not sure. It's true. She didn't seem to. I, I, think, I think that it's got to come from Sansa. I think that Arya's been totally duped. For whatever training she's had, I really think little finger duped her. Unless there's some major twist and it's all like, you know, a double <laughs> double twist. Well, I, I don't think know. We, but, but we didn't really see much of the fallout. We saw her yeah. leaving and we saw him showing up. So we, we know that it was a setup from him. But it, there's every possibility that she now goes to Sansa and, and you know, tells him kind of what she knows about Littlefinger's setup. I think it really, you know, in the end, or or Bran, or Bran, or Bran could come in, and then you have all three Starks working together, and that's that's how I see it going. Littlefinger gets brought down by the three kids who lost their father because of him. Mm. I saw I saw a really hilarious meme. It, I forget. I wish I had it now to pull it up, but it was a Scooby Doo meme. It was Littlefinger as you know whatever villain there is in a Scooby-Doo episode that's like pretending to do something and then it had you know Sansa and Arya and Bran Bran was shaggy of course but uh, it had all of them you know he's like I would have done it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids <laughs> and Ghost was, was Scooby-Doo so here's here's where this might come up. I see people asking questions about how why Sansa like Arya hasn't figured this out yet. Well, Arya hasn't actually confronted Sansa with this letter yet. When she confronts her with the letter and Sansa tells her what happened Arya will be able to read whether Sansa's lying or not about what happened. And mm -hmm. and I think Arya will tell to know that Sansa's not lying. She's like, yeah, it was forced. Now, Arya's not very forgiving of being forced. Like, you had a choice. You could have refused to write. Like, Arya being so stubborn and... I mean, Arya's the one who ran at Melisandre and yelled at the Brotherhood for giving up Gendry and was like, you know, if she had had a sword, she might have drawn it, you know? <laughs> so she doesn't understand as well... Um, this whole laying low, uh, playing along as well. She's not as forgiving of that, so that could see that being a little bit of a problem. But still, I, I agree that ultimately the end will be Littlefinger being undone. We'll see. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Move on to Eastwatch? Yeah, I think it is time for Eastwatch. Um, so early in the episode, we get Bran seeing Eastwatch. And even earlier in the episode, we see yeah, Eastwatch well, added to so the here, call. Yeah, we see in opening credits, you can see here I have... Side by side, East Watch in real, li real life, <laughs> and East Watch in the credits, uh, with pretty similar. Yeah, and it was kind of cool to see Night King and Bran kind of go at it. I wonder if there's a little foreshadowing for, you know, a little war battle or something um, that might that might come later. It seems like we should have that kind of Night King Bran battle, like battle of skin changing or something. But it seemed like Night King had no trouble this time. Just Pow! You're out of the Ravens. You know, it looks like Bran is still kind of outmatched there. At least if that's uh, any indication, if that scene is any indication. Um, one of the cool things about this big army on the march is you can actually, if you take a close look at it, you can see some of the White Walkers marching along with it, not just the Night King sitting in the center on that, on that rise. There were some of them on the outskirts of the army. So there's a bunch of them. 
And we've always kind of been curious how many walkers there are, and the show has played with that. They've never given us a, a number. We really wonder how many there are in the books, too. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But actually arriving at Eastwatch, John and company, whew, so many reunions again, right? <laughs> Thoros and Beric, you know, Gendry not too happy to see them. Uh, John recognizes the Hound. Tormund and, and Jorah have some things to say to each other. Uh, yeah, just, just a lot of that. Um, we don't really know what's up with the rest of the soldiers. I know some of them are wildlings um, that are with them in this group. So that's they're kind of nameless. I guess we call them red shirts. And uh, I get a kick out of Jorah and John being, you know, practiced at dying. Not uh, not Jorah, sorry, Beric being practiced at dying, and Jorah kind of making peace with the fact that he was going to die. So we got a lot of dying experience in this group. <laughs> what do you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, they've all got a sort of, you know, either they brush with mortality or actually experience with mortality, such as John and Barrick. But you have Sander Clegane's metaphorical death. Uh, the Hound is dead. Sander Clegane is alive. Uh, Jorah's brush with Grayscale. Obviously, he was prepared to die. Gendry references his near miss with Melisandre. And, you know, you just have, I think, as far as Thoros is closely connected with Beric and Tormund's experience as a wildling commander gives him kind of a lot of experience with the actual dead, um, the army of the dead. So I think really these people, this group is the, the right group of people for the job. Yeah, our co-writer Joe Buckley points out that he, he really likes the parallel between the maester scene and these seven kind of setting aside their differences and their prejudices to work together to something that they think they know is really important, whereas the maesters are just kind of laughing about this and just not believing it. And even though they have so much more power to make something happen, ironically, despite not being kings. And I think that's pretty neat. Yokboy, you had some thoughts on this as well? Yeah, I was thinking, I kind of... There's a bit of kind of, I don't know, it feels a little bit silly, this storyline. <laughs> if this was happening in the books, I would probably kind of roll my eyes and think, what? You, you know, but uh, I guess it's the show playing to its strengths and it should be a kind of high octane visual feast. And so, uh, you know, I really hope that they go for it and it's going to definitely be gripping and bloodthirsty. Seven samurai with frozen testicles. You can count me in, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'll tell you, uh, leading up to this, this is one of the things I definitely was spoiled on before. You know, as you guys know, I am spoiled on a lot of the stuff. Not not most of the nitty-gritty details. There's tons of things I didn't know about. Like, I didn't know what would happen with Randall and Dickon, you know, for, for example. There's a bunch of things. But I did know that they were going to go on a quest to get a white. And I was like... <laughs> That sounds so stupid. How are they going to do this? And I guess they'll explain it. No, I'm not really. They don't have any plan that they set out There's like, no okay, we'll get a cage, you know, like, well, let's bring two just in case. So they have no plan at all. Yeah, whatever plan they may have discussed was done off screen. Yeah. And we do at least have Shay's pulling this image up here. Of, uh, they do have some more men that are coming with them, clearly pulling something, and I'm hoping it's something cage-like or a sledge at least. You yeah, know, we can't really see what it is except that they're pulling or... it. Yeah, um, it's a dark image that I lightened up, but it was just a, a shot where we saw it, so it's easy for people to miss it. A lot of people thought it was just them seven, but clearly they've got five more people joining them at the very least. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, there's that's that. Right. We'll see what 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 they brought to put the white in. <laughs> 
I think they're going to use the, use the white as a sledge. <laughs> Just <laughs> kind of lie him down and ride him down the hill. <laughs> I don't really know what the difference between a sled and a sledge is, but I they're don't know. both the same. I, looked I think it up, a sledge though. is a draggable, like a draggable. Yeah. I looked it up. Thing. I was like, do you even Platform. mean sled as he is? I was like, no, he means sledge. Okay. Yeah, sled is for like going down a hill or, mm-hmm. I think, but a sledge is for pulling objects across snow. I yeah. Think. So they brought a sledge. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a great comment from Tad Heichel. Who says he's got a lot of great different names for this group? We encourage you to submit your own names for this group of seven. We've heard, of course, the Magnificent Seven, the Seven Samurai, but now we have the Snow Patrol, the Seven Snow Mari, the Snow Aside Squad, the Seven Samarosi, the Westerosi Expendables, the Avengers. So, uh, what's your name? He says, what's your favorite na- full name, a fun name for the band of really cold brothers that headed north of the wall? Well, he, he I think he just took them I all think there. I think Band of Really Cold Brothers is my favorite out of those. <laughs> band of Really Cold Brothers. Yeah, that's really good. I think I like the Snow Aside Squad. Cause, uh... I like, yeah, Seven Snowmarai. <laughs> <pretty good. laughs> I'm, I'm sticking with the Seven Samurai with frozen testicles. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's oh. it's too bad they didn't bring Theon. Then they could throw that off. You know? oh. That was below the belt. Oh! <laughs> I see some people in the chat. I see with what you did there. Fellowship of the North. Fellowship of the North, okay. Yeah, yeah the Fellowship of Ice the and Fire. Stupid Seven. That's cool. <laughs> the Stupid Seven. <laughs> yeah, we have a few Fellowship ones. Vindicators. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some good ones in there um so that's a big wait and see obviously they're going beyond the wall that's the episode ends at that point they're walking out into the snow <laughs> they all like look over at each other and yeah. it's like oh they each have their buddy except for you know john doesn't have one but they each look over at each other at one person and like nod <laughs> i was cracking up a little bit <laughs> yeah all right let's go mm. ah, thoros ah, looks ah. over at sandor you know <laughs> Someone says the Cold Warriors. <laughs> I like that. Seven Psychos. Snow's Seven. Yeah. <laughs> Someone says, it's a dumb idea. Just bring Cersei there to look. <laughs> funny funny uh, observation. I think it was Joanna Robinson. Maybe it was somebody else. I apologize if I got the reference, if, uh, if I'm miscrediting this. But she pointed out that Cersei goes to Winterfell in episode one of season one. It goes back to King's Landing and never leaves. She's she's been at King's Landing the whole time, for the entire the time. Pretty much the whole time. Yeah. Almost other than her walk of shame. Yeah, yeah. Other than her walk. Yeah, she walked all around King's Landing for that, but yeah, she doesn't get out much. <laughs> the only other person we can think of that's been less mobile is Robert Aaron, who was never. You know, he appeared in season one and hasn't appeared every season, but he's never left the Vale. Never left the Vale. He's at least left the Eyrie and gone gone down go to, to the base of the mountain. Yeah, he did go to mm-hmm. Runestone, I guess. So, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Was that Runestone, or was that meant to be the uh, the um, other Royce castle? It's unclear, okay, but... Okay, anyway, it's not important. That, well, that household in the, is jo- was given to the Royces in the book, so it's not even clear that that yeah. is theirs in the show. Okay. But so, either way, it's the it's same, yeah. same difference. <laughs> so, there's no Euron in this no, episode? I just have to share one more. Snow one more? White and the Seven Dwarves. Oh, Snow White and the Seven... That's good. Snow White. <laughs> Okay, I had to share it. Uh, Glaciers uh, Seven, nice. Yeah. John White of the Seven Norths. You guys are are, are just churning these out here. Yes. See, this is why it's good to come to the live stream for these amazing puns, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> Aziz, are you crowdsourcing puns to feed your addiction? Yes, yes, I am. You guys can see that I can't get enough. I'm 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 an addict. <laughs> I need to go to Punsters Anonymous. <laughs> okay, so yeah, there's no Euron in this episode. There, you know, but there's certainly implications for Euron. There's no the Unsullied are still 
I don't know, <laughs> walking across the country. There, Masande wasn't present, and I wonder if Masande went to be with the Dothraki or the army or somewhere else, or to to maybe do some negotiations with yeah. other reach houses because now that's all Danny's. There's a lot of places she could you could imagine that she would have work to do, but it was interesting that she wasn't there in any of these scenes. So I, I'm not suspicious. But I, I, you know, I take note. She's just so sad about Grey Worm. I don't know. She's laying in bed, depressed. <laughs> I don't know. She's got to go. Got to go find him. She's giving Daenerys and Jon some space to to be close. I don't know. Yeah, and you were wondering about about Theon. Yeah, I was. Too. It's pretty light on the. Th- I mean, he's not really in it at all. Yeah, he's just kind of. I guess mm-hmm. he's just waiting for a chance to talk to Danny. <laughs> Like, nah, I don't want to talk to him right now. <laughs> what do you think about this, Lady Gwen? I think I had thoughts about the lack of Ironborn in, in general. I mean, you know, there's no Euron. What's going on with Theon? He just, he showed up and like you said, he's just hanging out waiting. We don't know whatever <laughs> happened to Yara. Um, this, so this kind of lack of any advancement of it for any of them and now we've got you know two episodes left mm-hmm. has me kind of wondering about their arcs in general and in their relevance as the focus is shifting north i just i don't think that they're going to be irrelevant i just wonder how they're going to keep them relevant as we for the rest of the season at least as we start to really focus in the north i think I keep holding out hope that Euron will attack Old Town. You know, it's obviously <laughs> very much predicted in the books, and now that the Reach and is back in Danny's hands, so right? it's, uh, I feel like it's less likely, but I maybe. Well, I think it would be. Possible? I agree that Sam leaving really cuts down that likelihood, um, but they could give us, you know, Ebros and the other maesters like, ah, what's yeah. happening, and just show it, you know, like just show Euron's flame ships shooting into the harbor or showing their catapults just a, a shot, and it'd be funny for Sam to have gotten out of there just in time. <laughs> but I agree that Sam leaving took took that theory down at least one notch, if not two, if not took it down entirely. <laughs> so let's get on to our worry of the week. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you're saying any of yours disease because you have Saturday to talk about it with Sean. Yeah, I've already said that I think Jorah and Gendry are there, but I'll I'll go into more detail on Saturday and let you okay. guys run with yours for now. I'm most worried about Tormund because I don't really care about Jorah, Barak, and Thoros, whether <laughs> they die or not. Um, I, I I don't know how likely it is for any of them to die. I just don't care. I'm not worried. But uh, I, and I think Sandor, Gendry, and John in that order probably are the safest. So I, I wouldn't say I'm worried about them. So Tormund, I think, is the least important. Although I'm less worried about him just because. We don't know any other wildling characters. I, I feel like he is the wildling character that we know, so yeah. he's kind of safer. Uh, but I like him a lot, and I want him to be reunited with Brienne, and I want her to interact with Jamie and Torment. I am with I you want. there. I like I, I like that that line of thinking. What do you think, uh, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I think Torment has to see the big woman again. <laughs> the big woman. The big woman. <laughs> I think I agree that about Beric and Thoros. I, you know, I kind of think I don't know how worried I am about them. Jora, he has that significant <laughs> last look at Danny, which you know, right away I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's the end of him. <laughs> Someone else could bring the coin back to Tyrion. I have a friend who had a, a um, theory that perhaps Jorah could be the white that they bring back. Um, you know, he maybe he would sacrifice himself to be whited and he'd come back and, and have the coin on him or something, you know. 
Uh, Danny mm. would say, oh, I don't believe it. That's not Jorah. And, you know, there's the coin. I don't know. I thought it was a... He would say, I love you, Khaleesi. <laughs> <laughs> and Jorah's death would uh, make it, you know, more personal for Daenerys. Yes. You know? I don't know if that matters. I don't know if that's enough of a mm. reason. Because it seems like the reasons will be pretty darn compelling mm-hmm. anyway. Right. But if, you know, Jorah's death would really, would, would really hit her yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah. You know? That was the... So, um... And if he's a white, it would be like weird. I mean, like he's like she's like, okay, you're alive, but you're not. Um, maybe that would help her get used to the idea of John being on the Yoke boy, what about you? What's your what's your take here on uh, worry of the week? Okay, I, I would say that I think John and Sandor have got plot armor, and that the rest of them don't. So any combination of those, lot, I don't really feel. If any of the rest died, I wouldn't be like, oh, their story wasn't finished, you know. I, I think all of their arcs are, you know, going nowhere. So so I just think John and Sandor have got sufficient plot armor to make it home. The best kind of armor to fight the White Walkers is plot armor. Good point. <laughs> That's true. It's always the best armor. It's also the best flotation device. And uh, <laughs> makes you f- Jamie was wearing that that buoyant. In spite plot. of his armor was fire, it was fireproof and you know buoyant and buoyant. And, in spite of being plate full plate, <laughs> and his golden hand, you know, like that thing would really weigh yeah. him down. <laughs> it should have at least had him lose his hand so that the idea of him not sinking was a little more believable, <laughs> and then have him replace it with like a chainsaw, you know. <laughs> So let's take some questions from patrons and uh, other questions as well. I had some questions prepared ahead. Lady Jane of House Celtigar wanted us to post this meme, which I think is pretty hilarious. Um, it's the uh, character classes of each of the group here. We've got ranger, knight, warrior, barbarian, soldier, cleric, and undead knight. <laughs> They've got each of these characters has little special powers you can read under there. We'll leave that one up for a while while we do the rest of these questions. It's really funny. I like it very much. Uh, it does has that role playing game feel of this group of different guys that are running this kind of crazy mission. <laughs> Our warden of the east, Lord George Stormsville, uh, says meditating on the scene of John petting Drogon in episode five. I couldn't help thinking back on the scene in episode two of season six of Tyrion interacting with and liberating the dragons while reciting his book speech about having wanted a dragon for his name day when he was little. Clearly, the scene with John is to hint at his Targaryen heritage and/or his dragon rider status. I agree, but it, of course, it also hints at Daenerys's budding interest in him. But the question continues. But what about that Tyrion scene? Isn't its purpose similar? Why would D and D blow the budget there if the scene didn't have a larger purpose? Now, in the show, the only people to have touched the dragons are Danny, Tyrion, and John. Coincidence? I think not. Uh, I agree with you, Lord George Stormsville. I think that that was not a coincidence. I think there's all these connected things between John and Danny that kind of push them in the same place. And I think if we see that in the previously on, in one of these upcoming episodes of showing Tyrion with uh, the dragons below the pyramid in Marine, I think it's time to get hype about Tyrion riding a dragon. You guys have any takes on this? No, I, I agree. I had the same thought, you know, that just... Oh, well, there he is. It's almost the same scene, isn't it, really? That the dragon acted in the same same way. So Yeah, kind of kind of a little angry at first, but then kind of backed down mm-hmm. and got calm. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Cool. Okay, then next question is from Sir Kyle Dane, wielder of Sundown, Axe of the Afternoon. Where are the White Walkers in the books at the end of Dance with Dragons? 
dead things in the water at East Watch, but should we think that the White Watch, ah, oh, the White Watch, <laughs> that's a good name for it, the White Walker army is one mass horde like in the show, especially since the books don't have a clear Night King or central leader, maybe a Shadow Tower and East Watch coordinated attack makes more sense in the books. Yeah, I mean, okay, the White, the White, I'm about to say it again. The, the White's Watch. <laughs> they definitely have strategy. Like, in the early parts of the books, it's very clear that they are intentionally scaring these brothers so that they will, and letting them go, so that they'll spread fear in the Seven Kingdoms. So they are absolutely intelligent. They have strategy, and then they at least have some idea what they're doing. So I, I agree that the idea of them just attacking one spot in the wall is probably not how it'll go in the show, in the books. I think they'll probably do some sort of multi-coordinated attack or... Yeah, I mean, exactly. They, I don't know why they would all be in one place. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Or is it just kind of one of those things that we just can't know yet? Yeah, we, we can't know. You know what? We can't even know if they do or do not have a central yeah. leader. You know, we picking up hints from D&D or whatever. It's it's not really the, you know, the literary way to go about it. From the text, you can't, t- you know, you can't tell. And um, there's talk of the great other, isn't it? I mean, what? Who's the great other if it's not going to be the the leader of the White Walkers? So, it, it's really hard to say anything about their tactics. They, they, there were there wasn't any bunches of whites around when they attacked in the very first prologue. So, what's going on mm-hmm. there? Yeah, they maybe hadn't gathered enough of an army by that point. And okay, let's see. Next question from Dolores Ronit Cantrell. Hey, quick question for your book to show. Do you think it's possible for a white walker to take control of Ungregor via the captured white or for a white to raise the dead, causing even more damage at the armistice meeting? I don't think a white can raise the dead. I think it's only the walkers themselves can do that. But taking control of Ungregor, that's interesting. You got to wonder. I don't think they could do that from some great distance. But maybe if they are able to come in, you know, maybe if Gregor is still around by the time they get that far south. I don't know. It seems kind of... The, the distance seems to be a problem for this. But uh, I don't know. You guys have any thoughts on that? That's really interesting. I, I would say mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the undead guy. I mean, if if they were going to control anyone or, you know, even if Bran was to control anyone there, he's got to be the, be, be the one and think of the power if he was to be controlled. He's like some kind of machine, isn't he? But I, I'm, re- I'm really not sure that the White Walkers will go for him. If you guys have any other questions, especially if they pertain to predictions, send them to us on Saturday or send them to us offline and we'll take them on Saturday. Sean and I will be around to discuss predictions and theories. We will have trailer shots prepared and we'll talk about all of our new guesses that come up and uh, things that come up in the meantime. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so. Uh, so, Radio Westeros, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for being here for a long time, Yoke Boy. I know it's always late over there by the time we get done, so extra thanks to you for burning the midnight oil with your uh, cup of water. <laughs> my, my name is Yoke Boy, and I'm, I am of the night, Aziz. <laughs> Yoke Star. I think you're of the egg. I don't know. <laughs> Come and check out Radio Westeros podcast. We're on iTunes. We've got a YouTube channel. We're in the, all the usual places. Uh, our website's RadioWestros.com. And if you like the RLJ stuff, definitely, you know, you never heard us before. Come and check out our RLJ episode. It's number five. Cheers. Right on. <laughs>
Yes, and Lady Gwen as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, holding off a day so that we could be with you to talk about this. It's, it's been fun. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Glad I'm glad it worked out. Yes, it was the right decision. Good. It was. Okay. <laughs> Thanks also to Ashea for wearing many hats and none at the same time. Sometimes you do wear hats. Especially because I'm headphones. so distracted thinking about Pepe Silvia. <laughs> That's just so it's many really things to think to about at once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And thanks also to Michael Klarfeld for our maps and video intro. Thanks to Joey Townsend for the music. Thanks to Jesse Koval for the cover of the music. Well, I got a letter from Jesse Koval saying that he had no idea we've been thanking him for the outro music all these years because he doesn't usually listen to the, the end. And he's been laid up with maybe a, a small medical issue or something. And so he listened to the whole thing and finally heard us. And now, yeah, it's pretty hilarious. He, we've been thanking him for all this time and he just now heard. So that's great. <laughs> thanks also to our co-writer, Joe Buckley for throwing some extra thoughts in there and thanks to Radio Westeros' patrons as well for getting them here as well and uh, for funding all their great episodes thanks to the mysterious BR Hand of the King thanks to oh this one's for you Shea oh yes I've got a Hand of the Queen now Lord Michael Valerian, a knight of high tide and guardian of the DeLorean, hand of the queen. That's right. Also, thanks to Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the learned holder of the left-handed Valerian shears called Penance, and hand of the beard. Yeah, I'm all full on my spots, and Sean's getting there, too. That's right. And also thanks to Sir Valentin of House to Jen, creator of the Game of Predictions game, a free Game of Thrones predictions futures market, which there's a link to on our supporters page on the website. Thanks to Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice Fire Blog and Warden of the West. Thanks to George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Thanks for the question today, by the way. Kabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath is of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord Osborne is of Castle Werewood, spreading the old gods by planting werewood saplings in the Reach, Stormlands and Crownlands. His motto is, Our Roots Run Deep. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. By the way, I made a small mistake on Monday. I talked about, or maybe it was on Sunday, whichever, when I said that Vagar crawled out of the God's Eye to die beneath the walls of Harrenhal, I got that backwards. It was Caraxes that, that crawled out of the water, and Vagar didn't. Small mistake, whatever. But, gotta correct it. <laughs> Also, our small council, Lord James Inkblade, is the Scholar Knight and Master of Whisperers. Grand Maester Saria is of the Barrows and Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is our Master of Coin. And Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyrlis of Castle Nyaki, the Alpha Patron. Also the Alpha Patron of Radio Westeros. Yeah, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains is and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort, uh, a lot of people's favorite patron. Uh, <laughs> Alicia, a lot of people. A lot of people's favorite patron. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Uh, Ashland Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemi Snuggle Bunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, holder of the Vorpal Snuggle Bunny. 
Lord Brandon Brewer is of Castle Black Rune, sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithomancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, motto Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwearwood. Listen for the silence is their motto. And Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council is... Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe, Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles and Mistress of Ships. Lady Mai of House Swan, Mistress of, Sh- Mistress of Whispers. Elia of Upstate, Master of Coin. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth, middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. Tell us how that. the books end up, please. Yes, yes, exactly. If you're the daughter of Leona Mormon, I gotta know. Uh, and <laughs> Lady E.S., Master of Laws. Right on. Uh, Council of Beard includes Grand Maester Clark, Protector of Wisdom and Beards, and Beard Wisdom. Lord Commander Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine, leads our Kingsguard. Say that leads again, our please. Kingsguard. What's that? Say that again because I bumped the microphone. Yeah, Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine, leads our Kingsguard. Our other King's Guard includes Sir Andrew the Dragon's Heath Prophet, longest tenured White Sword, Sir Dolorous D, Sir Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums, Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk, and Sir Brian Rivers, the Bastard of the Riverlands. And uh, we have our Queen's Guard as well. We've got Lord Captain Commander Hannah Hellman, the Sellsword Sentinel, Lady Nymeria of House Sea Purtle, Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune, I Must Not Fear, Fear is the Mind Killer. Jane Grey, Lady Esk of the Tattered Spire, First Sword of Albion, Brian, the Pest of Hyrule, Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. That's right. Uh, and our beard guard is commanded by George the Golden, and he's backed up by L- Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, and Lady Rita of the Copper Mane, the Unbound, motto Dance the Fervor. Also thanks to Archmaester Twohill, Archmaester Itai, Archmaester Masson, whose ring and rod and mask are pale steel, Archmaester Huglin, whose ring and rod and mask are red gold, and Woods Witch Worlane Dervish, sworn to house Reed, Keeper of the Secrets of Greywater Watch, Maester Arbal, ever winning, and last but certainly not least, our Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Brave, uh, sorry, Denera Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, the First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, and First Steward Sir Jurian of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. And that's all for today. That is it. Thank you again to Radio Westeros. Thanks again to Ashea. Thank you for everyone who has joined us today. Looks like we got close to 700 today. That's awesome. And we'll be back on Saturday with predictions and theories. And uh, we should be back... to our normal time with Book to Show next week, Wednesday. Imagine we'll have a lot to talk about because remember this guy, remember this guy's episode, this episode on Sunday, 71 minutes long, a good extra chunk over the normal length. So we'll have even more to talk about. And that's it. We'll see you next time. Valar reread us, Valar rewatch us, and uh, Valar catastrophus. <laughs> <laughs>